Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Complete Center's Guide. My name is Tyler Fowler. I am your host. You can find all of the Complete Center's Guide episodes at www.completecenters.com. If you've got a topic, if you want to be on the, if you want to be a guest on the show, if you have a topic you want discussed, please email me at completecenter at gmail.com. Man, today we have probably one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. The best episode that we could possibly bring you guys on the Complete Center's Guide ever. Today we have Michael Keaton and Dr. Leighton Flowers joining us right here to, to discuss provisionism, to discuss Calvinism, to discuss the differences that we have had for however long, how, however long the sovereignty debate has been going on. We know that it goes back into Judaism with the Essenes, Sadducees, with the Pharisees. It continues in the modern day uh, debates that we have. James White has debated Dr. Flowers before. Um, Dr. Flair, uh, Dr. Flowers has had multiple, multiple uh, videos on YouTube about provisionism, uh, why he's not a Calvinist. Um, but I will let him introduce himself here in just a second. Again, if you guys didn't catch it the first time, you can find every episode completely free at www.completecenters.com. Uh, Michael, my guest today, he just did an episode uh, de- uh, debating David Pullman. On, on these key essential things. And, and what Michael and I have been talking about lately is that, you know, we, we understand that there are so many, I mean, how many debates are on YouTube about limited atonement? How many debates about total depravity? All of these different things. And what I've found uh, very, very uh, interesting is that we don't really understand, or, or we say we don't, why we believe those things. Um, because we're still using the same the same conversations, we're still using the same debates, and it doesn't seem that the conversation is progressing any further forward. And that's what we're trying to do here, at least. Um, we we are all united uh, under the blood of Jesus, and and we we have a faith that has been handed down. Um, so today we have to discuss uh, those differences again. So like I said, I've uh, I've invited uh, Michael to come on, um, introduce himself. Uh, here in just a second, and like I said, Dr. Leighton Flowers uh, to come on and do the exact same thing. So without any further ado, Michael, uh, man, what brings you back uh, to discuss, to sit down with Dr. Flowers um, about about these topics uh, that we're going to talk about today? Yeah, uh, well, firstly, thank you, of course, and uh, thank Noah, the technical genius. I always have to thank both of you guys just for giving me a platform. And uh, today, obviously, I mean, if you're going to talk about Calvinism, uh, then obviously Dr. Flowers is one of the premier voices, uh, at least at the popular level. And so to have the opportunity to dialogue with him, uh, that's just something that uh, I didn't want to pass up, and I'm thankful to you and Noah and also Dr. Flowers for uh, for the opportunity. Absolutely, man. And I'm still stoked that you even said yes to come on this thing, man. Like, I, but I'm so I'm so excited about it because at to real quick, just if I can. To the little backstory that got this conversation set up is that we was going to do a response video on the video that you did on uh, with the guys uh, from the Brodown and a mutual friend of ours, Joshua Davidson, had said, "Well, why don't you just get Doctor Flowers to come on, you know, the Complete Center's Guide and do it?" And I was like, "All right, um, if he'll if he will, yeah, sure, why not?" Um, and now here we are today. So by God's grace, thank you so much for uh, coming on, Doctor Flowers. How are you doing today, man? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so for those who uh, don't know, 
you um, specifically. Tell people what you're about, um, a little bit about yourself, and why are you, why did you decide to come on here today? What 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 can you bring to the table um, that maybe we've missed, that maybe we haven't really thought through uh, before? Yeah, well, um, I'm here because I was invited, but um, I, I think <laughs> beyond that, I you know I love talking about the sovereignty of God. I love talking about His grace, His goodness, His character, the doctrines of God's grace and and salvation. Um, the doctrine of sociology has been a, a major study of my life, having been a Calvinist for 10 years, uh, wrote on the doctrines uh, related to Calvinism within the Southern Baptist Convention for my doctoral program. But um, my livelihood is not Soteriology 101. It is kind of a side gig that I do. Um, but my, my real job is that of uh, an evangelist. I'm the director of evangelism uh, and apologetics for Texas Baptist. That's the job I did for a good 13, 14 years prior to even starting the podcast, where a lot of people know me on the internet through Soteriology 101 for obvious reasons. But um, that's really not my identity of people around here that know me here in Texas very rarely even hear me mention Calvinism or <laughs> Tulip or anything about it. But uh, those online who have known me through the podcast and through the blog, of course, see me as the the flowers attacking Tulip guy. And uh, <laughs> I understand the, the way that that is perceived sometimes. But uh, I do want to say up front that though uh, it, it may come across at, to some, especially from the outside, that my, my heart is standing against Calvinist. It's really not. It's standing against what I believe is wrong about Calvinism. Uh, but I have a lot of really close friends who are Calvinists and, uh, and even family members who I love dearly. And having been a Calvinist for some time, I don't think of Calvinists like a cult or that they're not brothers or sisters in the Lord, um, as sometimes you'll hear in very polemic type of language online. And, uh, and I try to have a reasoned discussion with people who disagree with me about these, these subjects and to give a good biblical defense for why we believe what we believe. One of my, my pet peeves is when those from the, the free will or the non-Calvinistic vantage point uh, just quote John 3.16 over and over again, or sure. they say, well, we just don't believe in that predestination stuff or something like that. And that's about the level of the defense that they can bring to the table. And, and that's one of the reasons I started the podcast was to bring a, a hopefully a more robust biblical response from the non-Calvinistic perspective. Sure, absolutely. Now, you said that you were Calvinist for roughly 10 years. I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this before, but can you give just a brief little why, what started changing? Why all of a sudden, um, or, or was it something that gradually happened over time that you just, what got you to change your mind uh, about these things? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'd come into Calvinism when I was about 19 years old, I introduced to it when I first went off to college, and uh, read MacArthur and, and later Piper, R.C. Sproul, and, and all the kind of big name guys that most people are familiar with. And really, prior to that, hadn't really studied a lot about sociology in general or Romans 9 or Ephesians 1. I really didn't have a basis of theological understanding. And so when these things were first being explained to me from big hitters and very convincing uh, in-depth exegetical pastors like those I just mentioned, uh, it was very easy for me to step right into Calvinism as one who was a theology geek already, um, very, very much drawn into the, the, the ideology of the whole concept. It's very a packaged kind of gave a good answer, it seemed to me, to all the, the, the questions that I had had raised throughout my theological upbringing. And, uh, and there was a part of me that was really upset that I hadn't been taught the doctrine of election and predestination growing up in my church. And so I, th I think I went through what sometimes is referred to as kind of a cage stage Calvinism for a while there, 
where I wanted mm -hmm. to try to convince everybody to believe uh, the tulip that I had come to believe. And, uh, and so I, I was a full-fledged, you know, five-point Calvinist in that sense. Um, and and the 10 years so later, that was in my 20s, and when I was getting close to my, my, my 30s, um, I was actually reading a book by A.W. Tozer, who I was turned on to by John Piper, uh, none mm -hmm. other than, because he, he was often quoting from uh, A.W. Tozer as, as an influential person in his own life. Right. And, and I was reading Tozer, and it, I came across some quotes that really weren't fitting my Calvinistic paradigm. And it made me begin to wonder, okay, well, isn't it Tozer a Calvinist? He must be a Calvinist because he's smart and, and John Piper likes him. So, I mean, everybody, everybody who's smart and biblical has to be a Calvinist, right? I mean, <laughs> right. it's only those, it's only those dumb Arminians over there that are, you know, the name be paying be weak, weak guys over there. And as I just, I just couldn't fathom that somebody who is intelligent and exegetical and biblical and, and, and that Piper quoted from that he wasn't a Calvinist. Mm -hmm. And it's, so that kind of, uh, set me into kind of a, a study of, okay, if, if Tozer and C.S. Lewis and, and other people that I, I really do respect in the theological world aren't adopting the system, why aren't they adopting the system? Um, what, what, is their, what is their reason? What is their basis for this? Because the people I had run to in the quote-unquote Arminian world, the answers that they were giving me were less than satisfactory. They were usually very surface level and emotional based, um, you know, and, and accuse Calvinist of believing, you know, all babies are going to hell, or they just, you know, quote John 316 again, all the time and, and not give me really any good reason why they believed differently than what Paul was obviously saying in Romans chapter nine, in my estimation. Right. And so it wasn't until I really began to study the robust scholars from the other side that I began to realize there are actual robust, deep theological answers exegetical based answers, not just emotive answers from the the best uh, of the scholars from the other side. Once I realized that, it began to kind of open my eyes to some some other ways of, of reading a text that I had not considered before. And um, after two or three years of kind of fighting it and kind of working through it, I, I eventually left behind Calvinism. I see. Let me ask you a question just because I, I, I like to ask this question a little bit, you know, to, to different to different folks, you know, different camps. But do you think that one's philosophical presuppositions, and I know that we should never do this, but we all do it at the same time, because let's be honest, there's things that the Bible does not answer. It's not a philosophical textbook. Um, but do you think that one's philosophical presuppositions can play a, a you know, play a an influence or, or, or whatever um, in you know, how a person reads the Bible into their hermeneutic um, that they come to their theological conclusions with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if you, if you've adopted a, a particular worldview or a way of thinking um, it can most certainly influence you. In fact, that, you know, there's studies that tend to show that there are certain personality types that are more drawn uh, to a Calvinistic way of thinking versus others. Sure. Uh, it's, it's much more male dominated than, than female um, and and that that usually speaks to the type of, of personality and the type of person uh, that is drawn to a particular worldview in the way that it's explained, uh, which is an interesting you know study in human dynamics and all those kinds of things, which I, I find interesting. But um, yeah, of course, your your philosophical background and your worldview can make a a, a big difference as well. Absolutely, Mike. Um, so. I know you're chomping at the bit <laughs> to talk. Um, what do you got, man? Um, well, you know, I think we would be remiss to to ever intimate that there aren't 
fantastic uh, theological scholars uh, that reject Calvinism. And when I say Calvinism, of course, I'm talking about the particular soteriological distinctives. Uh, and But where I would push back maybe a little bit on what Dr. Flowers has said, I find that uh, when I read a Tozer or, or Moody or any of these guys in the past who are not Calvinists but seem to be able to explain the Trinity really well or, or, or these other uh, biblical principles, uh, I don't find their arguments very convincing uh, when it comes to the soteriological stuff. Uh, and I believe that, uh, you know, on the Calvinist side, uh, that's been addressed. Almost every objection to me seems to be more exegetical. And again, that's that's me, uh, but it seems that the most exegetical presentation, for instance, you and I have spoken before about John 6 or Romans 9, the ability to, to, to go into those texts, Ephesians 2, to stay in those texts, uh, to not need to bring something from outside, uh, but to be able to just read those texts in context in a consistent way, uh, all the great minds of the past, uh, and that we've C.S. Lewis, for instance, I've, uh, even G.K. Chesterton, who was a Catholic, there's been great stuff uh, that I heard that I learned from him and that I agree with him on. But when it comes to the particular soteriological distinctives of Calvinism, every work that I've seen written on it, the most consistent exegetical view seems to always be taken uh, by the Calvinist writers. Uh, that's just something that I just can't escape from. And again, I was almost on the opposite position. I was uh, sort of a Southern Baptist traditionalist uh, was the way I kind of uh, entered into the faith. And uh, I know that some, when you talk about presuppositions, I think this happens to a lot of people because it happened to me. I didn't understand Calvinism, but I just read the, the conclusions of the so-called five points. And I thought, well, that goes against everything that I think because I had already believed that God is desperately trying to save everyone, that he loves everyone. And so for me... Uh, the, the most in-depth exegesis seems to, to to fall on the side of Calvinism every time with everyone that I've read. So in a nutshell, then, whenever applied consistently through the, 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 to, the totality of the Bible, you believe that Calvinism, at the end of the day, has the best exegetical footing, um, if you could even, or if you could word it like that, correct? Uh when it comes to soteriology, yes, I believe that. Okay. And again, there are other areas where non-Calvinists are, are fantastic. So, right. Okay, so I guess that's where I just want to dig into a little bit is because I I would also, you know, side with Mike on, on, the, on TULIP. You know, I hold to the five points as well. Um, but again, like I said, I want to, I don't care at the end of the day, and just to state on record again, uh, for the umpteenth time, at the end of the day, I want to find truth. I want to know what's true, what's not. Um, and if there are great men um, who've put in the time, who've put in the actual energy and effort to do these things, um, like Dr. Flowers has, um, why, the reason he disagrees with these things obviously has to be from a, a biblical perspective. So that's why I invite people like him, David Palman, uh, to come on and share their views. Um, so let's go ahead and transition into that now, if, if everybody's cool with that. Um, Dr. Flowers, would you provide just, I guess, uh, what is what is different about what you believe now, what you hold to now, um, than, than Mike, uh, for example. Well, I, I guess we could just start with the, the outline of TULIP, um, because it kind of provides a historical, uh, way of remembering what Calvinists hold that's, that's distinguishable from those who don't consider themselves soteriologically Calvinistic. Uh, and it really starts with the T, which stands for total depravity, as you both know, um, and on that particular point, I, I actually agree with Calvinists with regard to the depravity of humanity. I believe that, that all people have fallen short of God's glory. All are sinners. We all need a Savior. Uh, 
uh, we are fallen. But I don't agree with the aspect of, of total depravity, which goes on to say, as John Piper, Sproul, and others uh, reference, as total inability. And this is re in reference to more of a spiritual inability, not a physical inability. So people can see and hear physically the, the, the scriptures. They can see the scriptures written. They can hear. They can have a, a general knowledge of words. They understand what the preacher saying, those kinds of things. We're talking about a moral inability. And so the Calvinist will teach that people, when they hear the gospel, because of their natural condition, they can't desire to repent and believe the gospel um, because of this moral incapacity from birth. And this is what I don't find uh, established in the scriptures. This is where I would push back on my Calvinist friends and say, yeah, we're, we're fallen, but that doesn't mean we can't respond to God's appeal to be reconciled from that fall. And this is where I, I really think the crux of the entire debate lands right there on that point, because it is the foundation to the entire tulip systematic, even by R.C. Sproul's and many other Calvinistic, leading Calvinistic scholars admit that T sure. of total depravity is really the foundation root for the entire systematic. And it kind of rises or falls based upon the establishment of this concept. And the concept is ultimately that mankind is born in a condition which they are fallen, and therefore, because they're fallen, they cannot reply positively to God's own appeals to be reconciled from their fallen condition, unless God unilaterally chose them before they were ever born and gives them uh, an irresistible work of grace, or what we call, you know, uh, effectual calling, uh, depends on the Calvinist that you're talking to, is what they might refer to that as. And so if, if you were one of the ones that was chosen before the foundation of the world, uh, for reasons that are not really ever revealed to us. It's just that it's within, it's within the secret counsel of God's word or God's will that he has chosen some people and not others to give this miracle to, this this regenerative miracle to, to cause them to be ontologically into to different people. They, they're ultimately changed into, into different beings in a sense to where they can now accept uh, the truth and the appeal of the gospel where they could not have done so um, beforehand, before being regenerated. And this is just something that I don't think is ever established in the scriptures. I understand why Calvinists believe it, having believed it myself for some time, but I don't, I don't find these, uh, these doctrines established convincingly, at least, at least enough for me to adopt them. Sure. Michael, um, how would you respond? I mean, obviously let's, the T of total depravity is built on, um, obviously biblical uh, passages, where would be one place that you would go to convince someone uh, to show them that no, uh, the Bible does teach that men are completely unable to respond to God's call? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we see it very early, very early on. We see uh, in Genesis 6, 5, and of course, the response could always be, well, that was the generation that was destroyed. But Later on in, in, in chapter 8, verse 21, when there's only Noah and his family upon the face of the earth, we read that uh, that every inclination of a man's heart is, is only evil continually from youth. Uh, and there's there's a lot of verses, really, a lot of passages. Jeremiah 17:9 speaks of uh, the heart being wicked. We see in Matthew 7:11 and Luke 11:13 uh, uh, that Jesus himself, when he's talking, he's not talking in some doctrinal manner. He's just having a, uh, just a standard conversation. Uh, with people, and he refers to them as you who are evil. If you who are evil know how to give your children good gifts. Um, and of course, Paul's words in Romans 3, 10 through 18, we know that there are no God seekers. Uh, and ultimately, 
uh, aside from that, just the fact that, yeah, we're totally corrupt is pretty much what these passages have to say. Even apart from that, uh, you know, Paul goes further and tells us what happens when we are actually when we actually hear those, uh, when we hear the word of God, when we're confronted with the message of God. We know that in our natural state, the state that we're in before regeneration, due to the fallen Adam, we're all in that state. Uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to us. Uh, and we know that we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Uh, you know, and if you want to go to Romans 8, 8, as we've talked about a lot of times, uh, you know, Paul makes clear there that, that, uh, that you know, the, the spirit, uh, uh, he is of the flesh, uh, cannot please God. And if you read before and after in seven and uh, in verses 7 and 9, he makes clear uh, that the, who are, those who are in, the, according to, those, to, the, to the flesh, uh, they just cannot submit themselves to the law of God. And so if this doesn't speak to an inability uh, for the natural man, then I don't know what could. Uh, although maybe the pushback would be if you if you won't accept what I believe to be good scriptural reasons uh, to believe that, then the then the uh, the contrary, uh, the other side of that, that we can come to God. I don't think that's I don't think there's even uh, a single verse that we could use uh, in scripture to back up the idea that men can just come based on the fact that they're made in the image of God and then they hear the gospel message proclaimed. I don't think there's there's virtually any evidence in Scripture for that uh, sort of notion. Right, right. And see, here's—this is just kind of whenever I read Jesus' words, and, and he's describing the heart. What I see is that evil thoughts, evil actions, adulteries, all, all thefts, all murders, all of these things stem from—it it seems like the heart is the source of these, you know, and, and then going back into the Old Testament— uh, going back into the Old Covenant promises, God promises in not only Ezekiel, but Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, all of these promises for a new heart, a new spirit. And just to me, you know, and, and I don't know if I'm doing this logically or, or systematically or, or what, but whenever, whenever, I, whenever I think about that, it just seems that one has to have a new heart in order to do what we would call a good thing, a good action, whether we call that a work, whether we call that, you know, an action or whatever, it seems that, you know, per Jesus' teaching, that we would have to have a new heart first. Um, Dr. Flowers, I know, obviously, you've heard it before. Um, so what is Jesus talking about um, specifically with, with, with the heart and, and with man's problem uh, that, that he's defiled from within? Well, a few things I would point out. I'll pick up where you just left off, but then we can go yeah. back and talk through some of the verses that Michael uh, kind of listed out there. Uh, let's talk about the new heart first. Um, if you, you you reference to Ezekiel, and if you look in Ezekiel 18, for example, it says, cast away from all your transgressions, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who declares the sovereign Lord. Therefore, repent and live. And so the, the, the scriptures seem to indicate that in order to get a new heart, you have to confess that your heart is corrupt. I, I think it's putting the cart before the horse to say that God has to give you a new heart in order for you to confess that, I, that you have a bad heart. Uh, you're not really confessing you have a bad heart because you actually have to confess that you used to have a bad heart because apparently you got a new heart in order to confess that you used to have a bad heart. Again, I, I think that the, the order salutis in scripture is that we're raised to new life through faith, not the other way around. John 20, 31 says that these things were written, speaking of the gospel, so that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. According to the Calvinist, one has to be given new life, regeneration, in order to believe. But according to John, one believes in order to be given new life. 
Jesus even said in John chapter 5, verse 40 to the Pharisees, you've refused to come to me so that you may have life. If Calvinism were true, then Jesus should have said, I've refused to give you life so that you would certainly come to me. And so again and again and again, I've got about 15 other verses that we could go through, which clearly sure. indicate that it's through faith that we're raised to new life, not that we're raised to new life unto faith. And that this has been the debate from the very beginning with regard to the order salutis. I think R.C. Sproul said it best when he talked about how regeneration preceding faith is the crux of the entire Calvinism versus Arminianism or non-Calvinistic debate. Sure, but absolutely. we can also go back to Genesis uh, chapter 6 and talk through that as well. Um, I, I think it's interesting that John, you know, that, that Genesis chapter 6 talks about how he regrets that he uh, created man on the earth, verse 6. Uh, and, uh, and he says, I will wipe from the face of the earth, the human race I've created with the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. And I regret that I've made him, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I have to ask the question, wh why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord, uh, to, well, I can just ask that question instead of providing what I think the answer has to be from the Calvinistic vantage point, I guess I can just ask you or Michael, um, when it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean to you? Does that mean that, that God unconditionally elected Noah and made him favorable through some kind of effectual grace on your right. view? Right. Michael, and I will let you uh, respond to that. Um, absolutely. Um, and then after that, if it's cool with you guys, I would love to jump right back into Ezekiel um, after we uh, talk about sure. Genesis 6 uh, for a little bit. Um, so, yeah, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind a couple of things here. First of all, uh, scripture is written to us from a holy God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Uh, obviously, he's much bigger than us. So when he speaks to us, he has to speak to us in an anthropological way, a way that we, we can understand. So naturally, when we read of Noah or we read of Job, uh, we read of righteous men, we're not always given a peek behind the curtain. We're not always given the mechanics of how that works. But I think that the only option, uh, the only conclusion we can draw from from scripture that does go into detail about how the process works is yes, if men are doing something that is pleasing to God, then there has been a work of some type done by God beforehand. Uh, and this and, and and to Layton's point, uh, Dr. Flowers, excuse me, uh, to the point that he made there, you know, we we could always uh, have a collection of verses that we can pull up and say, well, here's what this does, here's what this verse says. But ultimately, I think what we have to do is we have to exegete in a, in a contextually consistent way. Like if if, if something is spoken of clearly numerous times, then we can sort of use that as a foundation uh, from which to, to understand other passages that may, may not be as clear. So when I see someone doing something that appears to be a, a good act, pleasing to God, I must run that through the lens of what I know, and that is that man's heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. He can never understand it, and also that that uh, our righteousness is filthy rags to God, and that uh, that we cannot, cannot receive the things of God in our natural state. We're unable to. And so even though we don't have uh, in these circumstances, uh, the total explanation of what's happened uh, prior to these men's uh, righteous acts. Certainly, uh, I think, uh, foundationally, we have to understand that in order to please God, uh, there must be a work of God uh, done. Uh, and so that's pretty much the way I would answer that would be we don't always get a peek behind the curtain and how these things work. But when we do, when there is more detail given, we understand that it's a work of God. Uh, we see it with Lydia that we've already talked about in text, kind of back and forth. Uh, we hear it from Jesus' words, you didn't choose me, I chose you. 
Uh, and I think that's very consistent with what I consider to be the foundational soteriological passage in all of Scripture, and that's John 6, and the way that Jesus describes everything there, right? He describes the entire process. Uh, and so if we look at those words, you cannot come unless it's given by the Father, and those sorts of things, I think, create a foundation uh, and a lens through which we can view every act of righteousness that's done in Scripture. I don't think it, it does not come from the natural man. Let me ask you just a clarifying question real quick, and Dr. Flowers, I will let you have it. Um, would you agree with this statement, and this question actually is for both of you, um, a supernatural event, and I posted this on Facebook the other day um, just to see where you know kind of people are on it, but uh, I said this, a supernatural event is required for anyone to believe the gospel. What is meant by this is that God must directly work on the person hearing the gospel supernaturally, not naturally. Lydia being the main example. Um, Mike, would you agree with that statement? Or if not, what would you change about it? Um, and then Dr. Flowers, you can have it. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I heard exactly uh, everything. But what I did hear, yeah, I, have, I would, I would uh, affirm that completely. Uh, in, the, okay. in the sense that, yes, there must be some supernatural act done before a man can believe in a saving way. Because even in John eight thirty one, we read that Jean, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. So these people believed him, they were following him, and they end up being the same folks who say to him, uh, we've never been in bondage to anyone, Abraham is our father. And ultimately he leaves right. them with, ultimately his words are, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear them, and the reason you don't hear them is because you are not of God. Okay. Sorry, I was just trying to clarify. Uh, Dr. Flowers, you can uh, respond. Well, I would just reframe the question by, by asking, is the gospel itself a supernatural work of God, a grace of God? And, and I think we would all agree that the gospel came to us by supernatural means. Jesus being uh, incarnate, that's a part of the gospel, him dying a cruel death on a cross and being resurrected three days later, that's supernatural the inspiration of scripture is supernatural. These are all supernatural graces of God. The question is, is the gospel sufficient to do what the Bible says it was meant to do? And the Bible says it was meant to be an appeal sent to all creation, calling them to repentance and faith. And so therefore I think that it's sufficient to do exactly what it was meant to do, which is to call the lost to new life, to call the lost to repentance, to call the lost to reconciliation. And anyone who rejects that appeal the, the blame is on them and them alone for the rejection of that appeal. I don't believe that they're rejecting it because of a nature they were born with that they had no control over or because God didn't really want them or because God withheld from them a sufficient amount of grace. Instead, what I would say is that they reject, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness freely, meaning they could have done otherwise. God legitimately and uh, sincerely desires for them to repent in light of the gospel, but they resist that and they choose to reject the offer and the appeal of God on our perspective. And again, I'm not so much about trying to convince you two gentlemen of this perspective. Absolutely. I just want to try sure. to people to understand. And we are kind of bouncing from text to text, and it's kind yeah. of hard to kind of get from the, to, yeah. to all of them. But yeah, back, just real quickly, if we don't, if you don't mind, just finish up at Genesis six. Um, it says in verse nine there. It says Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, according to what you said earlier, Michael, the reason that he walks faithful, faithfully with God is because of some prior supernatural, and I would, I would assume if you're a Calvinist, it would be an effectual work, not just a provision or not just a revelation of God that was sufficient, but it had to be an effectual work causing Noah to walk faithfully. 
I, I would just point out a couple of things to highlight our differences here. Um, he was called a righteous man, but yet Paul says in Romans 3, famously, as you well know and quote quite regularly, that no one is righteous, no, not one. Well, why would Noah and Job and Enoch and Simeon and so many other people throughout Scripture be called righteous if, if no one is righteous? Well, I think we would all agree that there's two different forms of righteousness being discussed. The law of righteousness, which no one is righteous in accordance with the law because all have fallen short. No one is able to submit to and fulfill the demands of the law. And therefore, these people are being called righteous for the same reason that, that Paul says in Romans 1.17, the righteous live by faith. In other words, those who are truly righteous are not those who fulfill the demands of the law because nobody has done that save Christ. Those who are righteous are those who trust in Jesus, who trust in God and his revelation, his light. And so what I would say is that when it calls Noah a righteous man, it's not saying that, Ro that Noah has merited his salvation or that Noah is, is righteous in accordance with the demands of the law. It's saying that he's a righteous man on the basis of Christ's righteousness applied to him through faith, just like Abraham, when it says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't earn or merit his righteousness by believing. God graciously imputes the righteousness of Christ onto the account of Abraham or Noah. And so mm -hmm. Noah here was considered a righteous man, not because he earned or merited it, but because he trusted in God. And I believe anyone at this time could have also trusted in God, which is why he sends Noah to be a prophet for over 100 years before he actually floods the land. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to faith, genuinely, I think, calling them to something they could have done. Um, and what, what mm -hmm. seems strange to me, and maybe you can help me to understand this, is that if God is expressing, even anthropomorphically, this frustration at the people who aren't faithfully following like Noah apparently is in his family, why do you suppose God didn't do whatever he did to Noah and his family to some of the other people there? In other words, pick out 15, 20, 30 percent or 100 percent of the people if, if that's what's required or desired mm -hmm. and do whatever he did to Joan, uh, to, to Noah, um, causally determined them also to believe and, and to walk faithfully, uh, regenerate their hearts, do whatever he did to Noah. That way he doesn't have to flood the earth with judgment. He can just do to, you know, a good percentage of the people there in order to have a, a group of followers just like he's doing apparently to us today. He's apparently, you know, regenerating, you know, a percentage of us here on the earth today without destroying us. So my question is, why, why do you suppose that God would express frustration with the evil of these men if ultimately he's the one who's in control of whether they're acting like Noah and the, and the family of Noah, and he could have changed their desires and behaviors in the same way that he did for Noah? Excellent question, Michael. But, uh, uh, and with all due respect to Dr. Flowers, I, I really don't suppose either way. Uh, I don't really like to speculate on what, why the Lord did this or might not have done that. But I do believe scripture that tells me that he does as he pleases on more than a few occasions. That tells me that he accomplishes all his good pleasure. Uh, and also uh, understanding that he doesn't just desire to show one of his attributes, love. And, and he also desires to show his wrath uh, and his just punishment of those uh, wicked folks that hate him. So, I don't have much to offer to why he might have done this or that, but I just know that he does as he pleases and he accomplishes all his good pleasure and that none, yeah. none deserve grace anyway. So grace can't be demanded. Yeah. So he's perfectly just to do as he pleases there too. 
Yet Ezekiel says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the sovereign Lord, therefore repent and live. He seems to express that he does desire for people to repent so as to live. And you're seeming, it seems like you're saying that God actually wants to display his wrath through the people that he, uh, that he drowns through the flood. Um, and it seems to me that I'm just trying to, to make those comport together because obviously we all want to make scripture, uh, you know, congruent with other scriptures where they're not contradicting each other. Absolutely. And it just seems to me that his dis expression of desire to see all people come to repentance and faith, like we see in Ezekiel and so many other places, um, why wouldn't, if it is him unilaterally acting upon Noah and his family, instead of expressing frustration with their unbelief, a, a condition apparently they were born in that they could not have done anything about, why not just give them whatever he gave to Noah? And I'm not sure... I'm not sure that your your answer really addresses that question. We can move on. I mean, it, it's fine right. just to say we we don't know exactly why God does what He pleases, but it just it, to me that's where that's one of the issues that I would continually run into as a Calvinist. I would read through these texts and I would say that that just doesn't seem to be the natural meaning of this particular text, and that's one of the reasons that I don't take Genesis six in the way that Michael does uh, mm -hmm. when he first read it earlier to support uh, the the T of total depravity. Um, and so that, that's, that, that could be enough said about Genesis 6, and we can look at some of the other passages if you'd like. But I was just trying to help at least the audience to understand why we don't take Genesis 6 to mean that people are born in a condition where they can't respond to God's clear light and revelation of truth. No, absolutely, and I appreciate that. So let me see if I'm understanding it correctly, because I'm still on the fence on this one as well. So it sounds like what you're saying, Dr. Flowers, is why, if God is frustrated, if God is flooding the world anyway— if God is frustrated and yet Noah is doing something that everyone else in the world isn't doing and God's the one who gave that to him, why would God be angry because ultimately he's in charge of giving that faith out and then bringing on the, the, the total judgment? Is that accurate or? or? Yeah, um, yeah, right. If, if God's it's ultimately unilaterally in control over the behavior of his right. creatures uh, because they're born in a condition where they can't do anything except hate God based upon the nature they were born with, then it just seems strange for him to express this kind of frustration and then right. to find favor with Noah, who's walking faithfully. If he's ultimately the one who gave Noah some kind of regenerative grace or something to make him walk in this way, it, it just seems strange to then flood the earth instead of just doing what he did to Noah and his family, just give out right. some more grace, you know, <laughs> effectually regenerate some more people, you know, you don't right. have to, you don't have to destroy the world. Right, absolutely. Um, Mike, I will let you respond to that. Um, and then if it's, like I said, if it's okay with you guys, uh, I would personally like to transition into Ezekiel. Uh, yeah, and no, I don't I don't really have much more to offer. Obviously, uh, Dr. Flowers and I disagree, and I just would say that, uh, you know, I would remind everyone again that uh, grace is, cannot be demanded, and, and the Lord shows grace to whom he will. Amen. We both agree with that. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's transition into Ezekiel. Um, I want to bring up Ezekiel 11, uh, because Ezekiel 18 was brought up uh, a while ago. Um, and if you don't mind, uh, Dr. Flowers, can you just repeat um, that passage that you quoted from Ezekiel 18? Yeah, Ezekiel 18:31 is where I began, and it says, cast away from you all your transgressions, which is obviously repentance, you know, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Okay. Just to clarify real quick, would you consider repentance and faith um, 
something, uh, an action, something that God commands us to do? God calls us to repent for the commandments that we've broken. In other words, I separate, as I think Paul does, law from faith. Uh, because what, what I think, what, one of the, the critiques I have against Calvinists is that they tend mm-hmm. to treat um, faith as if it's another work of the law. And the way that I've described it, which is the way I think Paul is thinking of it, is there's meritorious works, meaning I am trying to earn my own righteousness through the works of the law versus repentance and faith, believing in the works of another, namely Christ. And the illustration I've used before is like climbing a rope. If, if I have an eternally high rope and, and it's told, you're told the only way you're going to get to heaven if, if you can physically climb this rope. And of course, you and I all know an eternally high rope. You're never going to be able to climb it. It's, an, it's literally impossible. And so people are striving to climb this rope. And then someone comes along and, and preaches the gospel to them and says, you can't climb this rope to heaven. It's impossible. The only hope that you have is to let go of the rope. In other words, stop striving, stop trying to merit salvation. Your only hope is to let go of the rope and trust Christ to carry you because he's the only way you're going to get to heaven. And then somebody coming along saying, well, wait, 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 wait. Climbing the rope is the same as letting go of the rope. In other words, trying to earn salvation by your own merit is the same as trusting in the merit of somebody else. And you can't do either one of those. And this is where I'd push back. I don't think this is the dichotomy that Paul ever sets up. I think we see the dichotomy that Paul sets up there in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and following, when he says that the Jews who pursued the law of righteousness have not attained it because they're pursuing it by merit, by law. But the Gentiles are attaining it. Why? Because they pursue it not through the law, but through faith. And so the pursuit is not, it's not a problem of pursuing. Uh, he, he uses a pursuit for both of them. It's one of them is pursuing it through the law, trying to climb the rope. The other is not trying to climb the rope. They're trusting in Jesus because they trust that he's the one that climbs the rope for them. In other words, he's the one who merits. And so what the Calvinist seems to do is to conflate those two together And what they're ultimately saying is in the same way that you can't climb the rope, you also can't let go and trust Christ because both of those are good things and therefore meritorious. And I think that's a faulty uh, view of what Paul is trying to actually teach us. Okay, so just to be clear, you don't think Paul would have seen believing in Jesus as a work such as the law said, thou shalt not murder. That's not the same thing for him or John or um, anyone else of that century, correct? Correct. Because I, I was, I was re- yeah, what, yeah. What I was referring to was First John three twenty three. Whenever John says, "And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he commanded us." Um, and I was referencing back to Ezekiel um, because the Lord says in Ezekiel um, in verse eighteen, when when they return, uh, obviously Israel, they will remove from it all its uh, detestable things and its abominations. I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the hearts of stone from their bodies, and I will give them our tender hearts, so that they may follow my statutes and observe my regulations and carry them out. I'm asking if those those things, those uh, statutes, those uh, regulations, are those kind of words synonymous with commandment, you know, commandments to believe and love, as John uh, seems to be saying. Right. Well, I would have some issues with the Ezekiel 36 passage because I think that's more in reference to Israel uh, in specific. But nevertheless, okay. more more generally with sociological terms, is that the, the those he's giving a new heart are those who confess they have a bad heart. And so 
if you like the publican in Luke 18 say, you know, you can't even look up to heaven. I, I don't deserve it. Um, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That, that, in and that, that cry out of that sinner is not meriting anything. I agree. He is simply, he's simply confessing, I can't keep your commandments. And so I, I can't follow right. all, all your rules. Now, that's not to say, and this is where I think sometimes people make a mistake. It's mm -hmm. not saying that people can't keep some commandments some of the time. I mean, there are people who resist lying when tempted to lie. There's people who resist committing adultery when tempted to commit adultery. There's people who follow commandments. Right. Um, that's, that's not the point. Um, there are people who do selfless acts, uh, you know, a, a soldier throwing himself on a grenade and, and he's not even a Christian, but he does this selfless act a fireman running into a building, risking his life to save uh, other people, a selfless mm -hmm. act. And they can even do it with selfless motivations. Sure. But the, the point of the scriptures is no matter how many quote unquote good things you do, they aren't enough to pay for your sin debt. You will mm -hmm. all, you have all fallen short. And therefore the only way to heaven is by trusting in Christ because right. he is the one who has merited that. So no matter, no matter how many good deeds you do, it's, it's a filthy rag in the sight of God, apart from his atoning work being applied to you, which he does by grace through faith. And sure. so this is why we push back and say, even faith in and of itself isn't meritorious. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It, mm -hmm. It's not saying Abraham believed and therefore he earned his own righteousness. It's saying that that because of he because of his faith, God chose graciously to credit him with the righteousness of Christ. He he was atoned for, based right. upon the grace of God, for those who trust in him. And so faith doesn't merit anything. Um, uh, trusting in Jesus doesn't merit uh, what we get. It's all by grace through faith. Mm -hmm. The faith is the 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 instrumental means by which God's grace is applied to those who trust in him. Right. I think I see what you're saying actually. So it's. God has described exactly what, you know, he's given us promises and he said to you who place your faith in me, um, do that and you will be saved. Period. No subject. Paul, Paul says right. in Romans 10, uh, nine, if you confess with your mouth, Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose, you know, on the third day, then you will be, be saved. The, the issue that I seem to have is whenever you go on in, in that, especially Romans 10, Paul says with the heart, one believes and has you know salvation or righteousness and with the and, and well that really you know because we do i agree with you 100 percent uh dr flowers that we you know are imputed christ righteousness um whenever we, whenever we believe and all of these different different things happen to us but i guess the point that i'm trying to make that it doesn't seem that's being you know um maybe i'm not being clear um is that why would we even want to do that because i agree with you it starts with conviction is what I call it. I have to be convicted of the truth. I have to know that I'm a sinner. I have to, all of these different things have to happen before I actually believe something, because I think that's why the, you know, Paul says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? It, it, it's, I mean, I can't tell you how many people, and I'm sure, you know, being the head of evangelism at Texas Baptist, you've talked to many people and they've laughed at you. They've, you know, they've scorned the God of the Bible and it's horrible and my heart breaks for them people, right? But at the end of the day, that's what I see. And I'm in, in, and to me, you know, taking everything and especially what, you know, with what Ezekiel has said, and not only in, you know, chapter 11, but 16, 36, 37, 40, all, all throughout Ezekiel, God is promising the new covenant, what's going to happen here. Um, but it just seems like, you know, that heart change 
has to happen first so that in order that uh, a Hena clause, right? So that all of these things, you know, these things will happen. What's the things that will happen? Well, that we'll follow God's statutes, that we'll observe his regulations, and that ultimately we will believe and be saved. Um, does that make sense, or or no, yeah, am I, I way mean, off I, in left I, field? <laughs> no, I, I totally understand where 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 the Calvinist is coming from. Um, I mean, I understand why you believe what you believe, and I understand what sure. you're saying. I just don't believe that that God is. And I use the word arbitrary, but that's yeah. you know even Jonathan Edwards, Chris Day, the there you arbitrary. go, <laughs> yeah, and, and Chris Day doesn't like that. Um, unilateral. I've tried try to start using the word unilaterally. Just decides sure. to give some people a new heart and not other people. I, I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches us. I, th- I think it teaches that he gives a new heart to those who humble themselves and trust in him and, and, and confess mm-hmm. their heart is corrupt. And mm-hmm. so um, one who, who comes to the, their pigsty of their life, so to speak, to use the prodigal son analogy or sub, to come, come to the end of themselves and says, you know, I, I'm done. I, I can't do this. I, I need help. Um, those are the ones that God shows mercy to, uh, the, the poor in spirit, the, those who humble themselves. Um, it, humble yourself and you will be exalted. God saves the humble and brings uh, low those eyes who are haughty, uh, Psalm 18, 27. There's, there's so many passages that tell us exactly sure. why God shows favor to some people and not others. Isaiah, what is it, 66, 2, that these are the ones I show favor, those with a contrite heart and who tremble at my word. It's not a, a secret as to who God favors. Um, I think the Calvinist just reads back into that, that God somehow causes that person through some unilateral act of grace to become humble at heart. And I don't believe that the Bible teaches this. I, I think that those who refuse to humble themselves will be humbled effectually in judgment. Um, but if you don't humble yourself, that's your fault, not God's. It's not a lacking of God's grace or a lacking of God's desire or a lacking of God's provision. It's your own stubborn rebellion. And so we can't put that off onto a sovereign decree or some kind of natural inborn condition. This is why I push back on this, because there's a lot of people, uh, some that I've played on my program, like the former lead singer of Cademan's Call, who was a very well-known Calvinist, who is now an atheist, ultimately using Calvinism as his excuse to say, well, if God really wants me, he'll wake me up. You know, he'll, he'll bring yeah, me to life. Horrible. And, and, and so yeah. these are the kinds of things that I'm pushing back on just to say, no, that God puts this responsibility onto you. You're the one who's to humble yourself. If you're waiting for him to effectually humble you through some irresistible work of grace, then you're going to be waiting until uh, judgment. Um, right. You are to humble yourself. Um, you, you, that's your responsibility to, to confess that you are, you have a corrupt heart and that you can't do it on your own and trust yeah. in him. And and he, he promises graciously to help those who cry out for help. Um, and so to, yeah. to speak, for example, of the first Corinthians passage that both of you referred to the foolishness. Um, and this is the question. Um, do people declare the cross as foolish because of a nature they were born with and they don't have any control over that. They just automatically just think the cross is foolish. Um, I don't believe that's what Paul's saying. I think if you look through that chapter, he continually uh, compares the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And what it seems to me that he's saying is that those who trust in the wisdom of the world will deem the cross as foolish. But in contrast, those who listen to the wisdom of God, namely through the inspiration of the apostles, will believe and be saved. And so th- this is not, in my estimation, in my interpretation of that text, is not a de- declaration of total inability from birth, i.e. because of the way you were born, you will automatically just think the cross is foolish. Um, you might accept the Quran, you might accept Confucius, you might accept atheism, you might accept all these other doctrines that are out there that are strange and weird, 
but you'll just automatically uh, consider the cross foolish because of the condition you were born with by sovereign decree. Again, to me, that again, this is just me. I understand that Michael and other Calvinists wouldn't see it this way, but to me, this this seems to give the very excuse back that that Romans one is removing by saying ultimately these people can't understand the gospel, they can't understand divine truth, they can't understand the the, the goodness and the character of God, not really because of the condition they're born in, and they ultimately have no control over this. And, and to me, that gives back uh, and the excuse of ultimately saying, well, I rejected God because, well, really, he first rejected me. I, I rejected God because he didn't give me the faith to believe, and I was born with the incapacity to have faith um, without the miraculous work of you know, regeneration. Um, all of these things are, I think, within the Calvinistic system, but not within the scriptures, as far as I can tell, at least. I would just, in response, I would just quote again Ezekiel, and and I would like to know, um, actually, and maybe press you on this a little bit, uh, Doctor Flowers, and and again, I just want to say humbly, thank you so much for for doing this. I know you're a busy man, and for sure. you to take time out, you know, to answer our questions, because like I said, at the end of the day, and we were talking the other night, at the end of the day, again, I just want to know truth, and but if I can, you know. And, and this goes really for anyone who who wants to come on here and have a conversation with me, is that if I think, you know, if I see something in the Bible that maybe, you know, one's not, I mean, obviously they're looking at it, they're taking all these things into consideration. I would never accuse anybody of doing that. Uh, some obviously do, uh, but it, I, again, I don't think Dr. Flowers is that kind of guy, um, just from my personal experiences with you so far. So thank you uh, for being just awesome, uh, Dr. Flowers. Sure. I appreciate it. My pleasure to help, however I can. <laughs> yeah. Again, and my, my goal is just that you understand where we're coming from as provisions yes. and not necessarily to convince you that, that I, I know it takes time to, to move from one worldview to another. It took me three years almost <laughs> studying it intently oh, wow. um, before I ended up uh, really kind of switching teams, so to speak. And so sure. I, I don't I don't fool myself or it's not so naive as to think I'm going to just uh, win somebody <laughs> over in a, in a single conversation. But if I can at least make them think, if I can at least make people go, okay, those, those provisionists over there, those non-Calvinists over there, at least they're not just, uh, you know, emotional, weak, you know, sure. guys that aren't willing to examine the scriptures. At least they're really right. trying to understand God's word. Um, because that, that was the mentality that I had as a Calvinist for yeah. so long is that the, the quote unquote Arminians were just, they're, you know, like a Joel Olstein type of person. And, right. and that's just not, that's not what I have found to be true, getting to know the best scholars from that worldview. Right, absolutely, and I I agree a hundred percent. At the end of the day, both camps say that both camps are doctrines. You know, they they teach doctrines of demons, and it's like I would never say that because at the end of the day, I if I'm wrong, and that what I'm teaching about is doctrines of demons, either I'm I'm really bad or God decreed it one of the two. But anyway, besides yeah. that, besides that, uh, I just want to I just want to maybe push back on Ezekiel thirty six a little bit because again, like I was saying a while ago, I think the new covenant is scattered throughout is not only Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophets who are promising that yes, look at, you know, look how bad it is. We're in exile, but God is promising to send his Messiah. Then this is what he's going to do. And and, okay, and it's but, interesting. But let me let yeah. me let, let, and again, I know where you're coming from on that one, Tyler. Sure. So, let me ask uh, let me ask the question. Mm -hmm. Does he give the new heart like we, we all agree he's giving a new heart to somebody, okay? Mm -hmm. Does he just pick people, um, you know, unilaterally and just give them a new heart or could that's a good it be, question. Does, it, does, does he give a new heart to the repentant? Yeah. To the that's a good, ones? 
That's so a good in other question. words, does Ezekiel 36 actually answer that question, or does it just tell us what God's going to do to certain people, the, those right. he favors? And who does he favor? Those with a contrite heart who tremble at his word. Um, again, the, the Bible doesn't keep a secret as to who he wants to show mercy to. He, mm -hmm. he wants to show mercy to those who humble themselves and trust in his mercy. Um, and so you, you can't read, in my estimation, what I would push back on you as, as yeah. don't read Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 as if it says, I have picked certain people unilaterally and I'm going to just give them a new heart for reasons that you don't know. Instead, right. hear that as I am going to put a new heart in the, in the hearts of the weak. The, he, he chooses the weak to shame the wise. He chooses humble. That is a condition. I mean, it's weakness. It's, it's humility. Um, and that condition is not something that's meritorious. There's nothing, there's nothing of worth about humility. It, it, the world sees somebody who's humble as weak and, and um, lesser than. And so by the world standard, anyone who humbles themselves and begs daddy for a slave job, that, that person's weak. Um, right. He's not, he's not meriting anything. And so I think what the Calvinist has done is because they know that <laughs> humility now, they know that humility is what God does show favor to. He does save the humble. Then therefore they make, they make it to where God has to somehow effectuate humility within those he's unilaterally chosen before birth. And again, that, that's just systematic in my estimation. I don't see anywhere where the Bible actually says that God's doing this. And that's, that's what I'm pushing back on. Okay, no, I understand that. Um, so let me just read it, and maybe we'll, we'll work with it uh, whenever it's been read. Um, now, what are you reading from again, just so I can uh, get it? Yeah, absolutely. Ezekiel 36. I was going to start in okay. uh, gotcha. 24, but we, I mean, we can just start at uh, 29. I mean, this is after God is saying, I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will, I will put a new heart, a new spirit within you. Uh, I will take initiative. You will be able, or I will take the initiative and... You will obey my statutes. And then he goes on to verse 30. He says, I will multiply the fruit of the trees and the produce. And then in verse 31, he says, then you. And it's interesting because after God gets done speaking about everything he's going to do, all of the promises on his side of the covenant, right? We are in the new covenant. This is the new covenant that's been promised all the way back in Jeremiah, all the way back, you know, even to here. And in verse 31, he says, then you will remember your evil behavior and your deeds, which were not good. You will loathe yourself on account of your sins and your abominable deeds. Understand that it is not for your sake I'm about to act, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and embarrassed by your behavior, O house of Israel. So I don't see that. Dr. Flowers, that God is saying, because you're more humble, and please correct me if that's that's a, a misrepresentation, because that's what I'm hearing, is that it, because I'm more humble than somebody, God chooses to bestow his favor on me. No, God tells me, no, you need to not worry about those quote-unquote good things you've done and be ashamed to be, uh, what's the words, be ashamed and embarrassed by your behavior. So it's not for anything that we do so i think it maybe it does answer your question it's not because of anything that we do it's because god arbitrarily or unilaterally chooses to um so i would just ask how would how would you understand god saying that i'm not i'm not doing this for your sake uh, it, it, it's because of me it's because of my name and my promises right because he made well, a promise to abraham yeah, I have a couple of um, broadcasts, as you can imagine, walking through Ezekiel 36 and <laughs> sure. describing yeah. more exegetically the, the, uh, the thing that we believe he's addressing historically with Israel and 
all that's happening with Israel and it's being restored, you know, from their captivity and all the things that are happening, there's there's much more to it. Um, and there's probably, according to some scholars, some eschatological uh, reading into this passage as well. And, and and I would just warn people to not over literalize um, eschatological things in addressing a particular nation during a time of desolation and uh, enslavement. Um, to, to, just to jump to in real quick. Clear, just, yeah. to, just to clarify real quick, do you not think that this passage is speaking about the new covenant that we find ourselves a part of today? I do believe there's application to the new covenant, but again, okay. I don't believe that it's an application uh, being uh, that some people arbitrarily are picked to be given a new heart versus what we see in Ezekiel 18, uh, you know, confess, turn from your evil ways, make yourselves a new heart, and I will heal you. Um, believe so as to be made alive. Uh, repent so as to live. It's never I will make you alive so that you'll repent. It's never I will, um, you know, I will give you a new heart so that you'll confess that you used to have a bad heart or something of that nature. Um, it, it's just the, the wrong order here, in, in my estimation. So, um, and and again, because it's a long chapter and because it has a lot of nuances there, it, it would take her take us probably longer than you want to take in this particular <laughs> afternoon to go through the, you know, each exegetical point of uh, Ezekiel. Uh, 36. But like I said, I, I can link or send you some links to some uh, commentary that I've done on Ezekiel 36 if you'd like to go more in depth in that. Absolutely. I would love to because, to be fair, I have not had a chance to listen to that yet. Um, so, yes, please do. Um, I would love to. Mike, you've been patient. I don't even know if you're still here, brother. Um, are you, <laughs> you You still around, Mike? <laughs> I'm still here, me and my oh, Dude, I, I apologize. So I apologize. This, here's the thing. If for anyone listening, anyone who's spent uh, more than five minutes into this topic, you know it's passionate. You know it's, it's a conversation that we've been dying to have now for a while. And I think, it's, uh, I think this is a great one so far. Um, but, Mike, do you have anything on Ezekiel, uh, New Covenant, or just anything? I know we've said a lot, dude. Um, and, and, again, forgive me for that. Um, but uh, what would you like to say, dude? Yeah, no, actually, I really, yeah, I kind of agree with Dr. Flowers a little bit there. You probably, uh, to get too in-depth, you're probably going to want to have uh, some time when you can spend a lot more time on it. Uh, but I quickly would just say, personally, I do agree with you, Tyler, on, and I do believe there's a good parallel with this uh, over in Jeremiah, especially uh, chapter 32. The one thing that I would take away here, because I think you were saying, uh, you know, hey, look, this doesn't say anything about our good works that we're doing uh, you know, and but I think Dr. Flowers was saying, uh, was agreeing, no, this doesn't say about good works, but it's the person who recognizes that they've not been doing those good works. Uh, and so for me, I would just say then uh, that comes to, to, to the new heart uh, uh, verse. And so we read before that, you know, he says, he mentions sprinkling clean water on it, which of course refers to like ritual purification, uh, removing defilement or what have you. And so I would say for me, what I see there is the new heart that instead of this heart that's unable to respond to the laws and commands of God uh, with love and obedience, that the new heart itself and the new spirit uh, are going to be these things that are going to be the things that allow them to actually recognize uh, that their good works are not, uh, that the good things they've done are not valuable and that they need to humble themselves. So I can see where both of you guys are coming from. And I would just inject that there that for me, I believe that the new heart is something that they need to have in order to recognize that those good works are not, not valuable, not intrinsically good before God, and that uh, in order to humble themselves, they need to have this new heart and new spirit. Amen. 
Amen. Dr. Flowers, um, would, do you have anything for Michael on that point? Or um, I know if not, um, but if so, please take your time. Uh, we're only in about an hour and 15. I don't know how long you guys have. Um, like I said, I think, what, two hours? Um, I shot everybody before we did this. You know, we're just going to shoot for around the two-hour mark. We're at an hour and 15 now. Um, so if you guys are still good, um, then we can transition. I know Mike wanted to talk about uh, John 8, and then at the a- after that, um, we will uh, we'll give it to uh, you, uh, Dr. Flowers, um, to, to kind of start wrapping up. And if there's anything so that we can be more, because here's the thing: when Michael and I were talking at the end of the day about it, and we saw whenever we watched the videos, both videos, um, the one that you did with Toby, and and again, like I told you, that a lot of things have changed for me uh, since then. I actually, matter of fact, you, and I think you'll like this, I sent Toby the video. I haven't talked to him since that video, but I've sent Toby the video, and I told him that I think since you spent more time critiquing him, he should respond to you, and, and so we'll see if that happens. Um, but, but if, uh, but yeah, if you don't have anything else for Mike, um, Mike, if you want to, we can, uh, transition into John, uh, chapter eight. Yeah, I'm fine to, to move to John chapter eight. If that's what uh, we'd like to discuss next, that'd be fine. Okay. All right, Mike, go ahead, buddy. Uh, yeah, uh, actually what I wanted to focus on there was, uh, and I told you earlier, uh, Tyler, the Bible that I, the Bible that I'm particularly using here actually breaks the paragraphs up and has little headlines, of course, over them. So starting here uh, for me uh, in John eight, uh, chapter eight, verse 31, uh, we read that then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, I actually touched on this a little earlier, and I don't have a lot more uh, to add to it other than uh, that we're, what's being referred to here are those Jews who believe, who believed him. Uh, and it's been noted, and I'm no Greek scholar, but the Eorist, uh word, uh, pistis, uh, I think, is used for belief here, which uh, John tends to not use. He tends to use, I think, it's the present. Uh, tense or something when he's talking about actual belief unto salvation. So there's a form of belief here, and ostensibly these people look like believers because they've been following him around. They, you know, they'd seen the miracles or what have you. So they look like believers. Uh, and so uh, we read of these same people down here in 33. My my, my Bible kind of jumps from red letters to black letters. So I'm noticing the black letters here in 31. Jesus says to those Jews who believed him down here in 33, they're answering him, "Hey, we're Abraham's seed." We've never been in bondage to anyone, right? I think it's interesting uh, that that uh, you know uh, the Son is the one who sets someone free, right? If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. It seems to indicate the Son is the one that has to be setting them free. Uh, they continue to talk back to him in verse 39. They say, Abraham is our father. And he says to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, uh, right? Uh, he said, you're doing the works of your father. These people who ostensibly believed him, we're doing the works of their father. And so that's when they respond with the, the, uh, the, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. And he says to him again, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and proceeded into the world. Uh, and ultimately the last thing that he says to him in this little paragraph, uh, this little group of paragraphs that I have kind of cordoned off here, uh, verse 47, he says, he who is of God, hears God's word. God's words, therefore you do not hear them because you are not of God. And I think that does parallel uh, with, uh, with Jesus' words that uh, my sheep hear my voice. So I would agree with Dr. Flowers that, that, the, that the gospel is a powerful thing. And it does do what it was designed to do. Uh, but I don't think that it was designed to, uh, I don't think that it was designed to, to enable the believer to, 
to to come to the Lord because otherwise uh, it seems like it would work on everyone in that way. Uh, but instead we see that uh, the natural man, again, we're told about a natural state that we're in, and that man actually rejects it as foolishness. Uh, and so I would just be curious to see uh, how Dr. Flowers responds to, to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, pretty easy to, to see it from our perspective, I hope. And, and if it's not clear, let me know. But um, we, we would agree with what Calvinists say with regard to Ephesians 2, that we are, we are born children of wrath. <laughs> uh, we're not born children of God. Um, in other words, we're born uh, in iniquity. We're not of God from birth, but we, we become children of God through faith. Uh, and even Calvinists uh, agree with that. We would d- differ on how one comes to faith, obviously, but we would all agree that no one's born a child of God already. At least I, I would hope that we would all agree with that. Therefore, um, saying that you don't believe because you're not of God doesn't mean that you you don't believe because you're not elect or because you're not really wanted or something of that nature, which is the way it seems like the Calvinist is reading Romans 8. And what it seems to me that Jesus is actually saying is, if you believed in Abraham, if you believe the scriptures, then you would believe me because they testify to who I am. But because you are of the devil, because you have not listened and learned from the father, because you haven't listened to Abraham and to Noah and to the, the saints of old, because you're not listening and learning from the father, you're not believing me because I and the father are one. And whenever he speaks, uh, whatever he speaks, I speak. And I don't say anything unless he tells me to say it. And so what I believe that John 8 and 10 that you reference as well with regard to sheep, when it says to the, and he says to the Pharisees, you refuse to believe uh, because you are not my sheep. I don't believe that Jesus is saying uh, that sheep there is referring to the unconditionally elected people before the foundation of the world, because then it would ultimately be saying, Jesus is, is ultimately saying to them, well, you don't believe because I don't really want you to. Or you don't you don't really you don't believe because I haven't you know chosen you I, I don't really pick I haven't picked you you're not one of the the blessed elect ones um, and and that's the way that that Calvinists t- tend to read that and I, and I just don't believe that that's what Jesus is saying especially given that he weeps over these people in in uh, Luke nineteen forty one and forty two saying that these things are now hidden from their eyes uh, he he talks about holding out his hands to them longing to gather them like a mother hen gathers the chicks under her wings. No, speaking of Jerusalem and, and uh, uh, directly, um, and hold, you know this this the desire of God for the nation of uh, of Israel it seems to be explicit throughout the text, and so for him to say you 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 don't believe in me because you're not chosen by me or because I don't really want you seems to to fly in the face of so many other passages of Scripture where he does express his longing and his desire for them. Instead, I, I think she is just idiomatic for follower. And so what, what he seems to be saying to me is, you won't believe in me, the son, the shepherd, because you're not a follower of God. If you followed God, if you listened and learned from God, if you read the scriptures and listened to Abraham and listened to Noah and listened to the saints of old, then you would believe me because I speak the exact same things that the scriptures speak of. I speak like God speaks. I sound just like him. We have the same voice. And if you were a sheep, a follower of God, then you would believe in me, the son. And so the, the theme that we see throughout John over and over and over again through five, six, seven, eight, he continually reflects back on that he and the father are one, that he speaks the same thing the father speaks. Why? Because he's trying to explain to them, if you followed God, 
then you would believe and follow me too, because we're the same. We're, we're the same. Okay. And so the point here in my estimation is to say, you refuse to believe in me, the son, because you've refused to believe the father. He's not saying you refuse to believe in me, the son, because the father doesn't love you and doesn't really want you. And he didn't really send me to die for you. And you were rejected unconditionally before you were born. I think that that's so antithetical to everything we see throughout the scriptures with regard to God's love for Israel and for all of his enemies, for that matter. Um, when God chooses the nation of Israel, he's choosing Israel not to the neglect of all the other nations of the world. He's choosing Israel to be a blessing to all the nations of the world, to bring the Messiah and his message of love and redemption for all the world. It's not a narrowing of God's mercy and grace. It's an expanding of it through the nation of Israel from our perspective. If I could just to jump in for just a second and actually read uh, the passage that they are talking about um, for, for those who are listening. Uh, verse 31, John 8, verse 31, this starts out in. Then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed him, If you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never been anyone's slaves. How can you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. Truth, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be really free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me, because my teaching makes no progress among you. I am telling you the things I have seen while with the Father. As for you, practice the things you have heard from from the father. Uh, they answered him, verse 39, Abraham is our father. Jesus replied, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the deeds of Abraham. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I had heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You people are doing the deeds of your father. Then they said to Jesus, we were not born as a result of immorality. We have only one Father, God himself. Jesus replied, If God were your Father, you would really love me. For I have come from God, and am now here. I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot accept my teaching. You people are from your father the devil, and you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not uphold the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I am telling you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can prove me guilty of any sin? If I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who belongs to God listens <clears throat> the one who belongs to God listens and responds to God's words. You don't listen and respond because you do not belong to God. And that's from the NET. Um, so, Michael, go ahead, um, just so everybody's on the same page. Uh, go ahead and respond. Right. Well, I think it's interesting because I think we probably would all agree that there's not a lot of fruit in jumping around from this passage to that passage to another passage. But uh, when we come to a, a, a passage like this, uh, from our perspective, uh, it seems obvious what's going on. And obviously, from Dr. Flowers' perspective, it seems obvious what's going on. So then when we when we arrive at a position where uh, we believe that you're not of God because uh, we believe that you don't hear the words because you're not of God versus where you're not of God because, because you won't heed his words, then I think, again, now we're at an impasse where we need to understand better man's ability. So how do we handle that? I think we would go back 
to John 6, and I don't think that, uh, and I've heard the best of the best uh, from uh, the various synergistic schools uh, walk through John 6, and I've never heard a convincing argument against uh, the simple words that Jesus speaks that no man can come, uh, and, and I think that speaks to ability. And so I think, again, what Dr. Flowers mentioned, there's a context to John 6, and to me the context I read there is, yes, these people are not believing. Yes, these people are rejecting it. Uh, but they're doing so because they're they're not. It's not uh, just that they're unable. That somehow they they've been uh, it's been predetermined that they never would have the ability. They don't have the desire. They don't have the desire, and I don't think we could say that uh, God owes them the grace of of giving them the desire. But nonetheless, what we read in John six is that no man can come to me unless it is given them by the Father. We know that all the Father gives or draws, and I think everyone would agree that those two phrases there are synonymous. Uh, and we know that all that the Father gives do indeed come. Uh, so. I think we would have to appeal to that if we reach some sort of impasse where we're just unable to agree on exactly what's meant there. And I think John 6 clears that up pretty good because it's a very unambiguous passage, uh, John 6 is. Right, right. Um, Dr. Flowers? Well, I think there's something that needs to be brought into the discussion as well, and that is yeah. the condition, the unique condition of Israel during this time. And this is often overlooked, I think, in these kinds of discussions, and this really <laughs> reflects on the historical context of all of these passages, uh, and and where the Israel that where Israel is generally speaking at this time, um, and I, I think we see this throughout the scriptures, including in John twelve thirty nine when it when it, it it asks the question, why can't they believe? And then it gives a quote from Ezekiel that we see about five or six places in the New Testament about how um, excuse me from Isaiah where it's quoted five or six times uh, throughout the New Testament regarding the condition of Israel as being hardened and uh, calloused in their rebellion. Um, and, and so th th the reason this is so important is because it really answers the issues of anthropology that are often raised in this, uh, this discussion. Because I think the presupposition that Calvinists have with their tea of their tulip is that the reason that the audience can't believe and trust in, in Christ as their Messiah is because of a condition ontologically they were born with due to the fall of Adam, when in reality the scripture continually points to their condition as hardened Jews in their rebellion against the, the Father because of their calloused rebellion over a period of time. For example, for example, um, and, and I wish we had a screen in front of us so we could read this together, but it, yeah. I think Acts chapter 28, where Paul is preaching to a group of, of Jews, um, and he gets frustrated because most of them aren't going to be aren't believing in him. Uh, but he spends all day with them in verse 23 of Acts 28. It says they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed them from morning until evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. So he's trying to persuade them. He's spending all day trying to persuade them of who Jesus is as their Messiah. He said, and it says some were convinced. In other words, I mean, he convinces some of them but others would not believe. And I think that's a, a direct act of the will. I think they're suppressing the truth and I think it's their fault. I don't think it's because God didn't choose them or because God didn't give them sufficient grace or something like that. I think this is a, 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 an act of the will of man to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so verse 25, it says, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke truth to your ancestors, when he said through Isaiah the prophet, by the way, this is out of Isaiah, the same place that John 12, 39 quotes from as well. And it says this, quote, go to this people, speaking of Israel, and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. 
Now that that condition right there is the condition of total inability from the T of tulip. But notice that it's not, he's not talking about everybody here from birth. He's talking about the condition of these specific Jews who refuse to believe. He's talking about their condition. Um, and notice even what it says in verse 27, he goes on to say, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. So notice it didn't say they were born this way um, or they, they were born in a condition where they could not have done otherwise or anything of that sort. It says they close their eyes. Otherwise, it says they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen, end quote. So he contrasts the Jews with the Gentiles here. Now, you and I all agree that the, the Gentiles aren't more moral than the Jews. If anything, they're less moral. Uh, they're, they're breaking a lot more laws than the Jews are. But what's the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles of this day? I think the difference is that the Jews are self-righteous. They don't think they need a physician because they think they're well. They think they, they, they're, they've got it together, and they have merited salvation by climbing the rope themselves. And therefore, they're the old wineskins that can't take the new wine. Their consciences have become seared. They are no longer uh, able to see and really perceive because of the condition they've grown into, not because of the fall of Adam that they inherited, and now they just can't understand basic truth and accept it. Um, now, the reason I bring all of that in is because when we look at passages like John 6, John 7, 8, 10, all these passages, and we're, we're seeing Jesus interact with Jews, then we have to understand why is he interacting in the way that he's interacting? Why is he using parabolic language like Mark 4 and Matthew 13 reflect on when they're asked the question, Jesus, you know, they ask Jesus, why, why do you keep speaking in parables? Why do you keep using riddles, some uh, translations say? Right. And he says, well, because these truths have been given to you, but not to them. Um, and, and I speak in parables, lest they see, hear, understand, and turn so as to be healed. And even says in Mark 4, 34 and following, he only spoke to them using riddles. And then he would speak to his disciples or his apostles. He would speak to them later and explain to him what, explain to them what he was meaning by the parabolic language. And so when you understand that, you understand the strategy that Jesus is employing while down from heaven, while incarnate. He is not entrusting himself to the, the, the Jewish people as a whole. He is only entrusting himself to a remnant of Jews. And he is cutting, him, he's cutting off those who are in their rebellion. And he's using parabolic language um, and riddles in order to keep them in the dark, lest they see, hear, understand, and turn, so as to bring about redemption. As Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he said, uh, these things were hidden from their eyes. Otherwise, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Um, and so the point is, is that Jesus strategically is, yes, cutting off people in their rebellion, namely the Jews who have grown self-righteous and, and calloused in their rebellion against the things of God. And he's cutting them off so as to bring redemption for all the world. And what this is really what Romans 9 through 11 is getting into, because those who are hardened and cut off in Romans 9 are the same ones that Paul says that he holds out hope for them, that they haven't stumbled beyond recovery, but that, that when the Jew, Gentiles come to salvation, that it might provoke these hardened Jews to envy so that mm -hmm. they too might leave their unbelief and be grafted back in. 
So even this blinding or this hardening is not unto certain condemnation. This is a redemptive purpose of God to bring about his redemptive plan. Now, I know that's a long way around this, and, and I know that's, I mean, I'm long-winded when it comes to these things, but it's because there's so much context behind this. Sure. Whenever we just jump into a text and we just kind of pull a proof text like John 6, 44 out of its context, and we don't understand that the people he's speaking to are hardened, calloused, self-righteous Jews who have the wrong concept of what the Messiah is to do and to be, and to realize that Jesus is only being entrusted with a select few from Israel, the remnant who are being given to him for a purpose. And in John 17, he even prays for his apostles. And he even says, mm -hmm. except for Judas, the one who was prophesied that, that was chosen for this purpose, and that those given to the, the son were in, uh, were in reference to the apostles themselves. And then he goes on to pray for those who will believe through their message. When we understand the context of that, we don't, we don't need this, this I, I think, erroneous concept of what the Calvinist interpretation brings, but instead we understand what Jesus is accomplishing in speaking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood without giving much, much explanation like he does in John chapter 6, which drives his audience away because it sounds like he's, he's speaking about cannibalism and, and complete right. blasphemy, saying you're down from heaven and all this stuff, and they, right. and they can't take the teaching, and they leave. And that seems to me to be a very purposeful thing on Jesus's uh, behalf. He's, tr he's, right. he's bringing them to a point where they're rebelling against him. He's bringing it to a head so that they ultimately will cry out, crucify him, which is ultimately the plan of redemption that, that he has from the very beginning. I guess it just doesn't seem, I don't know the word for it, to be honest. Um, if, if Jesus is desiring to save these people, why is at, at the same time he's judicially hardening them uh, so that they will not hear? I, I notice every time, 90% of the time, Jesus speaks a parable uh, in, in, in the synoptics and in John. He says, you who have ears, hear, right? He gives the command to hear. Um, but it was only to those who actually had the ears to hear. So I guess my question is, if God is desiring these these Jews, why is it at the same time he's cutting them off to make room for the Gentiles? Why not just save everybody? Well, this is what the, and we have this, uh, it's, it's, this is explained in more detail in my book, but, and, and okay. it's, and it's in other books too, with regard to what you would call uh, self-hardening and judicial hardening. Uh, self-hardening is, is just like what it sounds is when somebody becomes stubborn because of their own rebellion. And so somebody who continually rejects the, the truth of God, uh, like Hebrews warns against when you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. Sure. Um, and, and if, if somebody suppresses the truth enough times, eventually, what does God do? Well, he stops bringing them light. He stops bringing them truth. He, he's not obligated to, to, um, to continue and, and to strive with men forever. He can, in, as a judge, that's what judicial is, he can, as sure. a judge, cut them off in their rebellion. And, and a lot of people think that is, that is just an act of condemnation, but really we see this in the, the church in Corinth when Paul says um, of that rebellious sinner, he says, warn them once, warn them twice, and then cut them off from the church and have nothing to do with them so that you may save their soul. This is actually a merciful thing. Um, I use the illustration in my book about um, parents who have that rebellious, you know, 19-year-old living in their basement, mooching off of them, who's getting involved in drugs and alcohol. <clears throat> and actually, it's a very merciful thing to, to, to change the locks and, and lock them out of the house. 
because you, what you're hoping is, is that they'll come to their pigsty. They'll come to the end of themselves and, and realize the error of their ways and return in humiliation and in, in humility. The prodigal um, and, son. Right. It's exactly Absolutely. what God's doing to the nation of Israel. He's cutting them off in the rebellion with the hopes as to provoke them so that they will turn and be redeemed. But he's, he's doing this purposefully also to bring redemption, because mm-hmm. if they believe in large numbers, let, let's say, for example, in John chapter six, let's say Jesus, instead of saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, what if, what if instead he said, guys, um, I, I'm the Messiah and I'm here I'm here to save you. Um, and, and he, and he explains, he said, when, when I say eat my flesh, here's what I'm talking about. I'm saying, I want you to indulge in the word of God. I want you to listen to God. In other words, what if he said something very reasonable and very, and very, it just explained everything. Didn't use parables, didn't use riddles. And, and, and let's say the Holy spirit, like at Pentecost just comes down on these people. And let's say three or 4,000, 5,000 people that, that, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, what if all these people were filled with the Holy spirit and believed right then and there, would they have ever crucified him? Mm-hmm. Well, of course not. And this is exactly what 1 Corinthians 2 was saying that I referenced earlier. Paul said these things were hidden from their eyes. Otherwise, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. God is purposefully keeping already rebellious and hardened, self-righteous Jews in their rebellion so as to accomplish redemption through their rebellious action. And that's the interlocutor, by the way. That's the objector of Romans 9, who's saying ultimately the same objector in Romans 3, who says, hey, if my unrighteousness brings out your glory, then why am I to blame? In other words, if you're accomplishing redemption through me crying out, crucify him, if you're accomplishing your purpose through my rebellion, then why, why, why are you to blame me? That's the interlocutor in Romans 9. It's not somebody objecting against reprobation or Calvinism. It's somebody, it's a Jew rejecting the concept and idea of what you're, what you just asked about. Mm-hmm. God, why, why would you blame me if you, if you ultimately blinded me and gave me a spirit of stupor and hardened me in my rebellion so as to accomplish redemption through me? Why would you blame me? And that's, that's the person that Paul is saying, who are you to talk back to God? Um, if, if he wants to use a hardened lump of, of hardened clay, namely you, Israel, to bring about his redemptive plan and his purposes, then it hits his sovereign right to do whatever he wants to with you. Um, and, and that's the purpose um, of what Paul is saying in Romans 9 through 11, in my estimation. Sure. Michael, um, do you have a response? or? Well, I would just say that I think uh, Dr. Flowers, as a Baptist, probably uh, may have seen uh, – I know we've all saw those little, uh, little, little New Testaments that people used to pass around well. Uh, as Baptists, uh, like in VBS and other places, a lot of times we would have these little books that were nothing but tiny little Gospels of John uh, that we would give out. And I, I believe that uh, a person that took one of those home could could really understand uh, what Jesus was saying there. And so I think we 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 err when we start to bring too much. Obviously, we glean wisdom from 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 the entire corpus of Scripture. Uh, but I don't believe that we need to know, uh, you know, a big history of the, the Jewish people to understand what Jesus is saying there in John 6. I think it's pretty clear uh, what he's doing uh, because he goes further than just uh, uh, the relationship of the Jews to God. He's actually talking about salvation, eternal eternal, redemption, eternal redemption and salvation there, which goes for everyone. He doesn't say no Jewish man uh, may come to me. He says no man can come. No man may come. Uh, and again, the context there is that the Father does the drawing. Right, so so that's what precedes that the coming doesn't the father doesn't draw those that he sees are already coming to him. No, all that he draws will come to him, and he raises them up on the last day. 
So we see here again. I don't think I think that we can we can over complicate it, but it just I think that to understand the Gospel of John, uh, we pretty much need the Gospel of John. And so to understand John six, I think yeah, there's there's a context there, but I don't think the context in any way uh, uh, refutes the fact that uh, Jesus is speaking plainly here when he says that no one can come. That's a complete inability that he's speaking about there. You cannot come unless it's given by the Father, and, and that given uh, parallels the drawing. I think they're synonymous, and I've not heard too many scholars allege otherwise. And and those that the Father draws, they do come every time. Everyone the Father draws will come to him, and then they'll be raised up. And I think it's pretty simple to read, and I think, yeah, we obviously need context on anything we read, but I, I don't think that we need to go back and uh, uh, all the way into the Old Testament and understand the finer points of uh, of of, of uh, the Israelites' uh, rebellion against God, and uh, I don't think that uh, all that is needed to clarify what what we're reading in John six. Well, I've taught several yeah. classes on hermeneutics, and one of the things that we teach, and even R.C. Sproul's book that I used for one of my classes, teach that one of the first things that we have to do in any uh, good hermeneutical process is to find out who the audience is, and the condition of that audience. What is the historical context? And so, I think. Uh, use of parabolic language and the hardening of Israel is important to understand what's happening in that time. But, but let, let me, let me correct just one thing there. Um, I, I agree with the principle that no one can come unless they're drawn by the father. Um, in other words, we, we believe that God initiates, um, how will they believe in one whom they've not heard as Romans ten fourteen says that that implies they can't unless they hear. Um, and the, the problem is they can't hear if they're hardened there and, and what the Calvinist is assuming is that they can't hear because they're born that way. And what I'm saying is they can't hear because they're hardened. And so when it says he who has ears, let him hear, he's not referencing um, he who is elect, let him hear like they're picked uh, unconditionally before the world begin. He's saying those who, whose ears aren't calloused and hardened to the truth, let them hear. Um, and, and that's, that's the point of it. In other words, I think they're in the hardened condition for their own fault, not because of a decree of God that they were born with, which ultimately reestablishes the blameworthiness of the individual. And so to look at John 6, 44 in more detail, the way the Calvinist tends to be taking this in the Greek structure is ultimately to say no man, which by the way, the, the, the first man being referenced there is the, is the udais, which is the no man at the very beginning, no man can come which is an expression of the ability. So they can't, they can't do this unless God does something first. And we all agree with that. Um, we all agree God must do something first, okay? So no man can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the Calvinist believes that drawing is an effectual drawing, which I guess would represent regeneration, this unilateral work of God onto certain individuals and not others. We, on the I don't hand, know. Just real quick to clarify, I don't know if I would personally say that drawing and regeneration are synonymous. That's just from my perspective, though. Michael, um, what would you say real quick? Is drawing uh, well, and regeneration yeah, yeah. synonymous? Right. Again, historically, uh, Reformed theology has, has maintained that regeneration precedes faith logically, uh, but not necessarily temporally. So when we start to break it down uh, to too small a level and say exactly when does this happen as opposed to this, I don't know that... Uh, that we would say uh, ultimately that as soon as the drawing happens, uh, I don't. I think when we start breaking it down temporally, there's a problem. But yeah, I do think that the drawing that results in coming uh, does indicate regeneration. But again, I wouldn't get too technical with the uh, 
the temporal aspect of it. Right. So, in other words, there's different aspects to drawing right. that include regeneration, well, salvation. Nevertheless, all there's, yeah, there's yeah. something effectual or compelling about the drawing, typically from the Calvinistic reading. Um, and therefore, Absolutely. they would interpret, therefore, I will raise him, the one who is compelled at the last day. And what we as a, a traditionalist or a provisionist would say is, is the text is saying, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me enables him or calls him or, or invites him. Um, in other words, those are other, other passages like John 6, 65, when Jesus actually says later, this is why I told you no one can come unless it's been enabled by the father. Uh, in, in other words, we do believe in an enabling of the Father, which comes by light and revelation. How will they believe in one whom they've not heard? They have to be called. They have to be invited to 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 come to the the wedding banquet, Matthew twenty two. Uh, they have to be. You know, many are called, but few are elect. Uh, the the calling is is universally sent to all, and no one can believe in a. a someone they haven't heard of. And so they have mm -hmm. to hear in order to come. And so that's, that's what we believe that the drawing is. And so we would say no one or no man can come unless the father who sent me enables him. And I will raise up him who comes at the last day. So the antecedent sure. for him is the original, no man, not the him who's drawn. And in Greek scholars from both sides, of course, claim victory on this text, but there are many well well versed in Greek that would say that the hymn is referring to not only the one dragged or drawn, but the one who comes in response to the drawing. And so that that's how we would answer that. Right. And it would almost seem like there's a like I don't know if you call it a tripartite or not, but there's a given or a giving by the Father to the Son. There's a drawing and there's an ultimate, you know, coming on behalf of the 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 person and there's an ultimate raising up on the last day of Jesus. I don't think that we can separate them. You know, they're all, aren't they all in a sense one event? I mean, ultimately. Are, are you asking me? So. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, well, I'm just trying to clarify from either, either. Michael, it sounds like you want to jump in, so go for it. Well, I think so, but I think so, but... Uh, really, I just I wanted to know if I could if I could ask Dr. Flowers a quick question uh, about some things that he said here tonight, uh, and that is that he doesn't doesn't believe. I mean, we agree that man is uh, totally corrupt in the sense that we are uh, not that everyone is as evil as they could be all the time, uh, but that we have a broken uh, relationship with God uh, because of our sin. And so, I guess my question would just be if Dr. Flowers feels that we don't need to be regenerated prior to believing, uh, and instead faith comes by hearing. So if the gospel message is indeed in itself uh, enough to to produce uh, faith, yet all that hear it don't come to faith, uh, is, is that not logically saying that the difference between a saved and unsaved person is found in man ultimately? Well, the difference between the saved and the unsaved is their faith. Um, you, you, you've got people in, uh, who are immoral, both in heaven and hell. It's not at the level of the morality. You've got people who followed a lot more rules uh, who, who may be in heaven than, uh, than the counterpart that's, that's in, in hell who, who broke a lot more laws. In other words, it's not, a, it's not based upon the level of the morality like we all, we all understand that, I believe. What's the Absolutely. distinction between those who are in heaven and those in hell? It's those who trust in Jesus or not. So faith is the distinguishing factor. Um, and, and again, like I said, faith is not meritorious. Faith doesn't earn anything. Otherwise, if it did, Jesus wouldn't need to, needed to have died on, on the cross. You could just say, well, hey, faith earned your way in, you know, welcome. Um, and, you know, way to go. You, you earned it. Um, no, all have fallen short, even those who have faith, even those who humble themselves 
still deserve hell. Um, and that's the point that we're trying to get to is that it's not meritorious, but God does graciously choose to, uh, to place the righteousness of Christ on to the account of those who trust in him. I guess I would ask, how does provisionism account for those who are self-deceived, who, who think they believe that they have faith in God, who in Matthew 7, they cry out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? It seems like to me there that they're showing their fruit. They're either one, showing their fruits of their faith, quote unquote, or two, trying to, you know, base their works, you know, their entry into heaven based on their works. Um, so it's it's one or the other for me. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus who says guilty or innocent. Or, right. At the end of the day, it's God who declares righteousness or guilt. And I guess that's my question is you have so many people out here, if you were to you know tell them the gospel, oh, yeah, I believe that, I believe that. But at the end of the day, we see many of those who would maybe even profess faith in Christ. A lot of people who profess faith in Christ are headed to hell. So I guess I'm just asking, what is the difference between someone who actually gets into heaven on the day of judgment and those who think they're getting there? Well, I think that's kind of what the Matthew 22 parable of the wedding banquet is addressing when it talks about the many are called, but few are elect. And the few who are elect are those who come clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. And so there, there'll be some who come in response to the invitation, but they don't come in faith. Uh, they, they, they come instead based upon works or uh, mm -hmm. on their own righteousness or think they can get in a back door or something of that nature. Um, and those are the ones who he says, I never knew you. Um, mm -hmm. And what's he saying? Well, you never, we never had a relationship. You never knew the father through the son. You, you never right. trusted in him. And mm -hmm. so those who are granted entrance into the wedding banquet of the elect are those who come clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so would you equate belief and faith with receiving those righteous garments? Right. I think the, the righteous garments, the wedding garments are, are representative of the, the righteousness of Christ, uh, which we, we uh, attain okay. through faith in Christ. Fair enough. That Yeah, absolutely. So my question is, I'm assuming you're referring to the parable with the guy who was there without a wedding, uh, without a garment, correct? Yeah. He got kicked out. Matthew 22, correct. Ab absolutely. So what, what was, what's going on there? What is the purpose of that in the parable? Well, I think it's, it's reflecting on, you know, the, the fact that the gospel goes to first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, uh, to the good and the bad alike even says. So that's unconditioned on their morality, which is sometimes, mm -hmm. like I said, where Calvinist conflate the problem here because they, the good and the bad, they, they would put in with the good and the bad, the laws, they would put faith in there with it. And I don't think that that's the point of the parable. I think the point of the parable is to say, take this gospel to, to moral people and immoral people. It doesn't matter their morality, take it to all indiscriminately. Absolutely. And, and therefore um, people show up in response to the invitation, but it's only those who show up clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith who are actually granted entrance. And those who show up without Christ, in other words, they, they respond to the invitation, but they're not responding in the invitation in the way that they were called to, which is to trust in Christ for their, uh, for their salvation. But instead, they respond to the invitation, like you just said, for those that they try to do all the right things, do all the right deeds, go to church, you know, perform good deeds, whatever it is that they're, they're striving to do in order to respond to the invitation. Um, and that's the response, the reply I think they, they receive is I never knew you. You, yeah. you didn't trust in me to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
Sure, absolutely. Um, Michael, in the last couple of minutes, uh, well, not really because we can really end uh, whenever since we're not on a timer, um, but if there's any... Well, actually, let me let me rephrase that, Doctor uh, Doctor Flowers. Is there anything that you have uh, for us? Um, we're we're right at about the two hour mark now, and I know you usually keep your videos two hours. We usually keep ours an hour since we go on the radio, so we'll just break this one up into two um, and put them on the radio uh, like that. But is there anything else um, that you have? And and all all that I was saying there was we we don't have a strict time, so so feel free right. however and long I'm fine, you guys. I'm, I'm get fine time wise. If if y'all need to go a little bit longer to ask a question or two, I'm fine with that. But okay. I, I think I've explained basically uh, the tenets of provisionism. Um, I, I think that hopefully they're clear, at least to understand that when we, we talk about provisionism, we're really emphasizing the fact that we believe God provides the means of salvation to every man, woman, boy, and girl, that no one ultimately perishes because God didn't want them or because God didn't right. provide for them or because God rejected them before they were born or because God didn't give them the sufficient amount of grace that they needed to believe and trust in him. But instead, mm -hmm. anyone who perishes ultimately perishes, as Paul says, because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. Um, that that what J Jesus says in John chapter 12, um, that, the, that he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, and that the thing that will judge them on the final day are the very words that he speaks mm -hmm. to them, which is, I think, in reference to the gospel. In other words, what we're ultimately held accountable for is not how many commandments we've broken. We're not ultimately held accountable because of some imputed guilt from Adam. What, are, what, are, what is ultimately separating those who go to heaven and those who go to hell is what do you do with the words of Christ? And ultimately, the words of Christ are calling. It's an appeal, um, as I think, what is it, 2 Corinthians 5.20 that says that Christ is in us, making his appeal be reconciled to God. That is, a, that is a, an appeal that's made to all creation, calling all to salvation and all to faith. And we believe that atonement has been provided for the salvation of the world. And therefore, anyone who ultimately perishes does so because of their own refusal uh, to accept the truth so as to be saved. They, they have suppressed the truth freely. They could have done otherwise. They could have accepted the truth. They could have been, verse 17 of Romans chapter 1, the righteous live by faith. Not that yep. they earn or merit their own righteousness, but by trusting in Christ's righteousness, anyone and everyone can be declared righteous under the headship of Christ. And therefore, no one is, is born hopeless and helpless without uh, yeah. the means of a Savior in this world. Yeah, and see, I take, you know, I, and I love those words, Leighton, because, like, I take those to heart, you know what I mean? We just had, and I told you the other day that we just had, a, well, she's five months old now, you know, my baby girl. And I, I can't tell you, I don't know if it's stupid or people look at me like I'm crazy, but I tell her the gospel. I tell her the gospel almost every day, just so, because see, that's what I do see in scripture that God works through means. And the gospel is one of those means he's chosen to work through. Now, what I would say is, or, or I guess what I would ask is that I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong here. But after every time that I've told my little girl the gospel, I don't think she's believed. I don't think that, I, now I don't know her heart, but when, with Paul saying, with the heart one believes, I think this action of believing would start in the heart. That's If no one takes anything away from this conversation, take that, uh, because Paul says believing starts with the heart, I think you have to have a new heart to do that. So unless God changes my little girl's heart, now, is he limited to when he does that? Absolutely not. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that from my position, I think that my little girl, if she goes to heaven, which I pray if she were to die tomorrow, she would go to heaven, 
but I don't have to say, well, it's because she was too young to be held accountable. I don't have to say any of these things. All I can say is she is saved the same way I am saved. God decided to show mercy on me, period, in the subject. It has nothing to do with what I've done. It has nothing to do with what I think I've even done. You know, I could think that I've, been, I've believed in Jesus this whole time, and, we, and again, we see people crying out to God, confessing, Lord, Lord. Not, and not only that, but claiming to do miracles in his name, claiming to uh, cast out demons in his name. All of these different things, I think these people were really thinking that they were trusting Christ. So my question is, is if, if faith is required, and, and now either my little girl has believed or not, I don't think she has, say, God forbid, we get into an accident tomorrow and she dies, can I rest assured knowing that since I told my, my, my little girl the gospel, that she'll be in heaven, or do I have to re- rely on God to make that call finally? Well, let, let me back up and yeah. go back to something you said earlier in, in that, you know, in about your daughter. Um, yeah. It seems like you're presuming the presumption that you brought into that question is mm-hmm. that your daughter is born with a hardened heart. Yeah. And I, I don't find that in the Bible. Just like the, sure. the Calvinist says that, that total depravity doesn't mean that our people are as bad as they could be. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good that's a good principle. I actually agree with that because yeah. we all know the little old grandma who doesn't believe in Jesus, but she's a sweet old grandma that loves everybody and breaks cookies for people and, and pays her taxes sure. and does a bunch of nice things. Sure. And we all know the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world who are horrible, heinous sinners. Um, how can you possibly say everybody's totally depraved in the same way? Well, and Calvinists will rightly say um, uh, not everyone is as bad as they they could be. And I use a representative, and if you could see me, you could, I could use this as an analogy to say, you know, if I look at my hands, mm-hmm. that's, that's representing my behavior, my hands and my feet. And so the Calvinist, I think, would agree that not everyone is doing bad things with their hands, like stealing and murdering and doing all kinds of bad stuff with their hands. Right. And so Calvinists are really quick to say, just because somebody's totally depraved doesn't mean they're always as bad with their hands as they could be. Like your little girl is not sure. always just doing everything bad with her hands that she could be doing. She's as not totally eating people, center. that's for sure. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so... In the same way, I think that anthropology is a smart anthropology that the Calvinist is using there. I would just also apply it to her heart sure. and to her eyes. In other words, she's not as hardened as she could be. She's not as blind as she could be. She's not as deaf as she could be from birth. Mm-hmm. That's where I think the Calvinist goes too far. And they're ultimately saying that, yes, people are born already blind and hardened hearts where they can't really understand and accept the gospel. This mm-hmm. is not established in the Bible as far as I can tell. Yes, people are corrupt. Yes, people are sinful. Sinful. Yes, people are slaves to sin, but that doesn't mean you can't confess your enslavement so as to be set free because the truth is sent to set men free. If you suppress the truth, you'll remain in bondage and grow hardened to that truth. But if you accept the truth, it sets you free. And who's responsible for whether you accept the truth or not, God or you? I think you are. I think your daughter is responsible for what she does with the truth that she's uh, given. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I I was just going to say, so I think the presumption that children are born already as hardened or blinded to the gospel as they could be is also a false presumption. And therefore, if, if she hears the truth and she accepts it at early age, which we all pray for, then praise God for that. You know, she, she came like I did, I came at the age of seven to, to faith. Um, and, and it was raised believing in Jesus in that sense. And so, um, and so that, that's, you know, praise God for that. But this is why Jesus pulls up a random child in his sermon and says, you must humble yourself like this child. Well, what's the difference between an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old on Calvinism? Either you're chosen or you're not. Either you're elect or you're not. Either you're regenerate or you're not. The difference is 
is that a child is known to be more humble and teachable and moldable. An 80-year-old man is known to be set in his ways, the stick in the mud who's already decided what he wants <laughs> and what he believes. And so I think the illustration that Jesus gives of, of pulling up a child, you must humble yourself like this child. You must be moldable like this child. You must be willing to listen like this child is willing to learn and listen. Um, and that's the problem with the Jews that he's confronting in John chapter 8 and other places is that they have grown calloused and hardened and close their eyes and they're self-righteous and their old wineskins, their consciences have become seared. They're not born already seared. And this is where I think the tea of tulip messes up. It just assumes that everybody's conscience is already born seared and hardened and calloused to right. the point that they can't respond positively to the gospel appeal. And I don't think that's established biblically. I So just to respond to that, I don't, I, I think I would look at it from a different perspective, to be honest. I think I would either view my daughter because I do only see the Bible uh, putting up two options here, and that's either people, and I think we would all agree that my daughter is a people, she's a person, you are either in Adam or in Christ. So even not even looking at it from a total depravity look, I mean, if you don't want to look at it, I think my daughter was born, quote-unquote, in Adam. Now we can, you know, obviously get into what that means, um, and maybe that would be good for a later show, um, what, what that means, and what does it mean to be a slave <clears throat> excuse me, sl- a slave to sin and a slave to Christ. Um, we didn't get there today, but but we definitely can touch uh, next time. Um, and you are more than welcome um, anytime, Dr. Flowers. Um, if you ever want to come back on, you're more than welcome. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would just, like I said, I would just push back to say I don't view my little girl um, as being as bad as she could be, or, or, or she's cute. I tell her all the time, Oh, you're good. You're good. You know, but at the same time, but is she is hardened heart. Is she have a hardened heart as she could have? Well, again, I think that's irrelevant to whether she is an Adam or not. Surely we would not say, because again, this goes with her faith. She's not in Christ. No one's born in Christ. Well, what I'm correct? saying is, is if somebody in, if somebody's in Adam, which you said she is, does that mean I, therefore she has a hardened heart that can't that can't understand and receive the gospel. Well, I just because you're an Adam doesn't necessarily mean you won't be in Christ later. That's so I think right. That, that's exactly what I would say, and that's exactly what I would say with John eight and other things. Whenever, whenever they're right. said, you don't believe because you're not of God doesn't mean that they can't become of God if they if they start stop uh, rebelling and suppressing the truth. It just it's just saying this is your condition. This is where you are. Just like your daughter is in Adam right now, it doesn't mean she can't leave from being an Adam to becoming in Christ through faith. But uh-huh. the, 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 that question I'm asking is about her condition. We've already agreed she's not as bad with her hands as she could be. The question mm-hmm. is, is she as blind and hardened with her heart as she could be right now? And again, uh, so I don't know her heart. I know I've seen her angry. <laughs> I, I've seen her happy. Well, I'm you talking I mean? theologically, so, not specifically uh, about her. I'm just well, saying no, theologically. I, well, yeah. no, I agree with that. But I, I think of this practically as well, not just, okay, if I'm wrong about this systematic, then you know, so be it. No, that I, I genuinely am, am concerned about my little girl because if she were to die tomorrow, it seems that you would say that just because she, has, she didn't have faith, that's because, or, or that would land her in hell. That's the point oh, I was no, trying to make about no, Adam or no, in we, Adam we or in in age, We believe in the age of accountability. There's a okay. There's an article there at Sociology 101 that goes to the age of accountability. Which, by the way, I yes. used to I used to make fun of the age of accountability when I was a Calvinist, mm-hmm. um, and I did a study on that and and wrote an article that was published. Um, and I am more convinced it it has it has as much support biblically as the the triune nature of God does. 
really? It is very okay. well established throughout the scripture about the age of what is referred to as the age of responsibility or accountability, mm -hmm. um, which I, I would recommend because there's quite a few citations there with regard to how, how God holds people accountable um, based upon uh, their ability to respond to the truth in the light of God's revelation. Right. No, and, and I think, Michael, you want to get in? Well, if I could just uh, jump in there pretty quickly, I would say that as yeah, we're about to wrap I up. Do, I do believe in a form of the you know age of accountability. I do believe there's a time when there's a uh, maybe you'd call it a special dispensation of grace for children. Uh, and so, yeah, I know that I think even the Lord Himself in Jeremiah refers to uh, babies that are being sacrificed as innocent. So uh, certainly, it's not a, a necessarily a cabinet's distinctive that uh, that babies you know would are headed for hell if they die or something like that. I, I would also subscribe to some form of an age of accountability. But, Mike, let me just ask you a question real quick. You would say that my five-month-old daughter is guilty in Adam, correct? Like if she were to die tomorrow without without God's mercy, she would go to hell, correct? Right. I think that's just Scripture as opposed to a certain systematic view. Okay. Okay. And and just to clarify, Dr. Flowers, your position, what would what would have to happen if my little girl um, can't— can't can't believe um do you think that she could now or or should i just continue to tell her the gospel and hope she gets old enough i'm not no, trying to be it sounds like i'm not trust me i'm not trying to be like facetious there or anything like that but just out of curiosity yeah we, we don't believe that she inherits the guilt of adam um we believe that the curse of sin affects all of us but that she's not actually guilty for sin until she herself sins and 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 she does so willfully uh, with the, the knowledge of what she's doing as being wrong. And so uh, okay. if, if she were to die uh, today, uh, you know, as a very young person who's not reached an age of accountability, I think God's mercy covers her as a, uh, you know, as, as someone who has not reached the age of uh, account, the accountable age that the scriptures speak of. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's not, in, in our estimation, there's not a, a, a guilt to be uh, dealt with because we don't believe in, in inherited guilt um, based upon, quite a few passages throughout scripture that talk about not being held uh, accountable for the sins of our fathers. Right. Right. If I okay. could interject, if I could interject really quickly here, uh, mm -hmm. just, I just asked the question that is not bodily death, uh, pretty much affirmation of the fact that we're all under Adam's curse. Well, yeah, yeah that, and that's death. Death that's in itself. Kind of, I mean, yeah, but but even animals die, and we're not saying that they're morally sinful creatures. Uh, you know, uh, plants die, but they're not morally they're not morally accountable. I mean, death in and of itself is a result of a fallen world, but that doesn't mean that it's it's a direct uh, consequence of somebody like uh, a, a, a sin. Otherwise, we would all you know be aborted, or we'd all just die immediately because of sin. Um, right. We're in a fallen world, and because of that, it has consequences, which uh, includes uh, not being immoral, obviously. Right. No, I think the reason uh, that God keeps us alive, you know, whenever we all sin, you know, in his, you know, in his sight, in his presence every single day, you know, and him keeping us alive is a great, a very gracious act, um, especially when we know we don't deserve it. Um, so absolutely, 100%. Um, guys, uh, I think, um, is there any last kind of remarks um we'll go ahead and start wrapping up um i'll michael since you started it i'll leave it with you um and then uh, dr flowers you can wrap us up and i'll take us out of here if uh if that's cool with you guys if you if you guys got ain't sure. got anything else michael uh yeah okay uh one last thing that i'd like to say first of all again we thank dr flowers uh for for coming here and holding this dialogue with us but 
Uh, just before we go, I would like to mention that I have heard Dr. Flowers at times mention uh, uh, de- determinism and on a theological de- theological deterministic system this uh, and or that, and he seems to mention uh, on a theolo- on a theistic deterministic system, uh, people don't make choices or real choices. But as Calvinists, we do believe. Uh, just for the record, anybody uh, that was to hear that, we do believe men make choices. Men make real choices that they're responsible for. We just don't believe they have the freedom to act outside the eternal decree of God, but they do have a liberty uh, that's not harmed by uh, predestination, as the Reformed uh, confessions uh, uh, indicate. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, uh, as far as that goes, I appreciate the dialogue and uh, enjoyed it, and I thank you, Tyler, and Dr. Flowers as well, and also Noah. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So just to clarify that question again, can you ask it? Because I didn't really, I I missed it, dude. Can you rephrase it a little bit? Yeah, uh, I was a little bit long-winded there. I don't think it's really a question. I've just heard Dr. Flowers say from time to time that on a theistic deterministic system, uh, you know, he'll he'll indicate that man has no choice. And of course, as Calvinists, we do believe that men make choices all the time, and they're real, uh, actual choices. Uh, and so, and, and then to go even further, I would say that unless we're open theists, I guess the point I'm trying to make is I just wanted uh, to clarify that obviously there's more than one uh, type of determinism, because I would say unless we're open theists, we all believe in a, term, a determinism of some sort. So in other words, if God knows before the foundation of the world who's going to believe in him and who's not, then those who are saved are just as etched in stone uh, under his system or any non-open theistic system as Calvinism. I mean, all those that God knows and saw before the foundation of the world would not believe, are not going to believe. Right? So I would say that uh, it could seem unfair at times to to kind of label, to kind of intimate that Calvinism can only be logically consistent if it follows the rules of hard determinism, and certainly we would argue against that. Sure, and that might be a conversation for next time as well to kind of dig deep on that, because I know, Michael, you and I kind of have different views about uh, God determining all that comes to pass. Um, uh, Dr. Flowers, uh, just last remarks, and then I will take us out of here. Yeah, I think you're you're right. There's probably a conversation for later. I think uh, there, there's a little bit of uh, what we would refer to as the modal fallacy, where certainty does not mean necessity. In other words, knowledge mm-hmm. is not causal. Just because God knows something that a, a free agent will do doesn't mean that he caused or decreed or brought to pass that free agent's choice. And that is beyond our full comprehension, but just like we might say we don't know how God creates something from nothing, we believe that he does based upon the faith of what the scriptures reveal to us. In the same way, I may not know how an an omniscient God knows what the free choices of creatures will be, but I believe that he does based upon the revelation of scripture. And there are some philosophical issues with that that have been handled, you know, from from years and years gone by with Boethius and uh, and I know C.S. Lewis talks about this. I know Molinists talk about this as well. Their open theists have their theories. Um, I just don't believe that the Bible supports a deterministic uh, uh, premise. I'm an indeterminist in that sense, and therefore do not believe that God is ultimately causally determining whether you will accept or reject uh, Jesus as Savior. Um, and so I, I, I do want to just point out real quickly that that Calvinism, qua Calvinism, in other words, Calvinism as John Calvin taught it and as the leading scholars teach it, is determinism. I mean, it does affirm theistic determinism. Um, what the, Cal- the compatibilist is saying is that though determinism is true, it is also true that we are responsible for our choices. And ultimately, they appeal to the mystery of how those two things work together. 
and and I and I don't believe that that's a, a mystery that the Bible affords. I I think it's not only just a paradox. I find it contradictory to say that God is ultimately causally determining our desires, actions, and choices, while also holding us accountable for those desires, actions, and choices. And uh, and that's where the the debate has been for all all these years is ultimately trying to come to a point where we don't want to impugn the character of God. And I recognize Calvin didn't want to impugn the character of God, and neither does Michael. And I know, Tyler, you don't want to impugn the character of God. But what, what I'm trying to say is that if I were to adopt the claims of Calvinism, I, if I were being logically consistent with myself, I would have to believe that God was morally responsible for my own actions of evil and all the actions of evil in this world and therefore i rejected on that premise but i understand philosophically there are different places that people land based upon their own worldview and how they've come to kind of deal with the mysteries surrounding this this particular issue um, and i i just push people to understand uh the different theological and exegetical ways in which chapters like John chapter 6 or Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 or others are interpreted from both perspectives so as not to to go too far than what I think the scriptures are intending to teach us. Absolutely, and that definitely is a conversation uh, for next time. If I can just, um, but but here's just a little, <laughs> I actually disagree with Michael on this uh, and maybe even historic Calvinism on this point. Um, and again, I'll just leave that at that there, or I'll just leave that there and, uh, we can, uh, we can do that next time, uh, for sure. But I'd love to get that point out. But, um, real quick, if we can just end with this, we've all, we, we've sat down, we've talked, we've discussed things. And, and again, thank you both for coming on, um, doing this. I know both of you are busy. I'm busy with new baby girl. She's a handful um, she is a little center, I promise you, <laughs> but, but, but she's my big girl and I love her. And, and to be honest, whenever I saw her for the first time and I set my love on her, right? I never, I promise you guys, I never understood love until the moment that I looked at my daughter. And if that is just a fraction of how God looks at his children, I, there's no worry in the world. My hope is in my father, like my baby girl, even if she don't know it even if she's confused about it, that she don't know she's trusting in me daily depend, to, to depend, or she's depending on me to provide her with everything, literally, or else she would die. Even though she doesn't know that, she has been my greatest theological lesson because I look at God and I see how he does that with us as well and how he cares for us and does provide for us. Um, so with that being said, though, where where do we go from here? Um, where Where does the conversation go to next? It seems like we... At the end of the day, and, and at the end of all these conversations, we, we ultimately disagree on hermeneutics, ultimately disagree on philosophical presuppositions. Do we focus on those things next, or, or do we try to get them out of the Bible? Or how does that work? Um, Mike, I'll let you answer first. Uh, Leighton, or, or I'm sorry, Dr. Flowers, you can uh, respond uh, after him, and then we'll, we'll get out of here, guys. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure where where we go from here, I think it's always important to remember that ultimately, uh, when I see the Bible, I see Calvinism. I believe it is plain as day. But I also know that I am fallible. Uh, and, and, and very well, uh, historic Reformed theology could somehow be wrong. I can't see how it could be, but it could be wrong. So ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, I think we would all agree that uh, 
especially in today's climate, because I don't believe the world's becoming more friendly to Christianity. Uh, at the end of the day, I would say that, you know, we continue to do what we've always done, and that is meeting together and dialoguing together in love and grace, yeah. uh, but ultimately realizing that our Savior is Jesus. And in the words of Abraham, will not the God of all the earth do that which is right? So uh, we love one another, and we, we dialogue in grace, and going forward, I think that's what we keep in mind, is that, hey, there's still lost people out there that need evangelized, and that our, our Lord ultimately is the boss of all things. He's in control, and so uh, that's about all I could uh, add to that there. Amen, and we'll end with you, Dr. Flowers. Well, I, I would just say that, you know, obviously when we approach a passage, we're going to approach it differently because we have free will. Um, even as uh, God's creation and as children who have been regenerate, uh, I, I think everybody in this room uh, considers the other one a brother. Uh, and we, we believe in Jesus, we're trusting in him for our salvation, but the fact that we come to different interpretations, I think, is establishing that free will exists. Uh, otherwise, God's decreeing for some of his children to misinterpret the Bible, and I don't think that's a tenable way of looking at how life works. Um, and, and the way that I've, I've described it, which I think may sound like a tongue-in-cheek or a quirky kind of a statement, to, just to take a slight at my Calvinist friends, but it's really not. It's, it's actually a real argument. And that is that either I'm right or God has decreed for me to be wrong. Um, and and that, that's something that a Calvinist has to deal with, I think, at the root of this entire argument is that ultimately, if God decrees all things that comes to pass, that means on Calvinism, he has decreed for Arminians to be Arminians and provisionists to be provisionists for some reason. Um, and, and therefore, I, I feel like I'm in a pretty safe place because, again, I guess God decreed for me to misinterpret passages of Scripture if, if free will is not established, then you have to come to that conclusion. And so um, when, when we approach a text, what, I, what we'll say in my program a lot of times, it's kind of like those pictures that you see that are, look like a duck and a rabbit. Um, and it depends on how you look at the picture, whether you see the duck or the rabbit. Um, sometimes when we approach a text, it's kind of like that. We, we, we see it and we think, oh, man, it's obviously Paul's describing a duck here. Everybody knows it's just obviously a duck. And then somebody comes along and says, no, no, Paul's describing a rabbit. And it just, it just seems impossible that he could be describing a rabbit when it's obviously a duck. I think that's sometimes the way in which these debates go is that you just assume that there must be some nefarious intent on the person who's seeing the other picture. And, and I'm, not trying to dis, I'm not trying to say that Paul is describing both a duck and a rabbit. I'm trying to say that, yes, Paul is describing one or the other, but that the person who's interpreting that text is honestly seeing something differently than you are They're, They have good sure. intentions. And I believe Michael here, he has a good intention when he approaches John six, I think he's, he's trying to do his best to interpret God's word and to help people to understand it. I just believe he's seeing the wrong picture because he's not seeing it from the right uh, presupposition. And I'm assuming he would probably say the same about me, which is fine. We both have free will. And that's why we come to different conclusions. So if if I would just push back on that, whenever Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians 2.11, consequently God sends on them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. The context is they're already believing what is false, so why send a spirit on them to make them believe what is false? And it says, and so all of them who have not believed the truth they have, but have delighted in evil uh, will be condemned. Um, so what, from, from your perspective, Dr. Flowers, what is happening here? Why is God sending, because it sounded like you had a problem with God sending, making people believe what is false, correct? When that's what Paul says he does. I mean, well, I, I would encourage you, Tyler, to go back and listen to earlier when I talked about judicial hardening. Uh, sure. When I okay. So this is how, judicial yeah. hardening. 
Okay. Right, right. When somebody, when somebody rebels against the things of God, eventually God gives them over to their rebellion and blinds them from the truth. And, sure. and the hope there is, is that he will provoke them. In other words, it's not, it's not purely retributive. Um, there is, um, there is not just a desire for punishment there. There is a desire for them to, to leave their unbelief and be grafted back in as Romans 11 says, but, but sending a spirit of stupor as Romans 11 talks about the spirit of delusion here, these are acts of a judge on people who have freely rebelled against the things of God, not people who are just doing what they were ultimately decreed to do from birth and they couldn't have done otherwise. That doesn't make much sense for God to send a delusion to people who can't believe anyway. Why, why would you <laughs> Why would you speak in parables to people who were born unable to believe? That's like putting a blindfold on a corpse. Mm -hmm. uh, why would you send a spirit of delusion to people who were born unable to believe it and weren't elect? Sure. It, it it's, it's becomes redundant. And so that, that's why we push back against the Calvinists to say the reason that God's uh, giving them over and blinding them from the truth and using parabolic language is because they still have the capacity to see truth and believe it. But God strategically is keeping them in the blind in, in their blind condition, um, as we see in Mark 9, 9 and, and Matthew 16, 20 and so many other passages where he says, don't tell them who I am. Um, it, this, it, it's not the right time. He's keeping the truth from them. He's hiding it from their eyes, as the Bible says over and over again, for a purpose. But once that purpose is accomplished, that's why they call it the hardening that was temporary. Um, once it's accomplished, then he, he's, he, that hardening is lifted, and they could be provoked to envy and could come to salvation. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, and just to clarify, so I, so I understand where you're coming from, you would say it's almost like chastisement in the sense how I would word chastisement. Uh, like you use the example by cutting your your child off if it's a, or if they're right. you know dependent on drugs it seems that yeah absolutely i would say that a loving father does that but again the bible also says that god chastises his children and it seems here in in second thessalonians that that these do what yeah i mean he he would he would do that for the lost you know like the person in corinth the re, the rebellious sinner being cut off from the church so that you mm -hmm. may save a soul that that would be an example of of chastising a lost person but he would also do that with his own child. If, a, if his own child is backslidden, like the, the first Corinthians chapter three, where you've got uh, carnal believers, uh, I believe that God can, can chastise them and, and can, uh, can rebuke them or can, uh, you know, uh, bring them hardship in order to chastise them and bring them back into right relationship. And so, yeah, but God can use that same tool, both with his children and with the lost. Okay. That, that's, that's interesting because, uh, and maybe, that's a conversation definitely for next time. Um, so with that, thank you again, Michael. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Flowers, uh, for doing uh, this and coming on. Um, I, I, again, I really appreciate it. And with that being said, you guys can check out every single episode, every free episode at www.completecenters.com. And make sure you email me at completecenter.gmail.com for the topics, anything you want to see on the show, godly, obviously. Hit me up, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye.